0: You are listening to The Cycling Podcast.
1: Hello, my name's Daniel Freiber, and you're listening to a special Christmas edition of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll relive some of the best, most memorable or controversial moments of the 2023 editions of races which have been the cornerstone of our coverage and identity in our first decade of existence, the three-week Grand Tours. Over the next couple of hours, we'll take you on a journey back to Italy first, then France and finally Spain. Specifically, we'll invite you to join us back in the cycling podcast car, in the mix zone, on finish lines and even in restaurants for the immersive experience we've always given you for those very special nine weeks of every season. On the ground, in the trenches, every single day. On the women's front, it was the biggest major tour season to date with a week-long Vuelta finally and thrilling second edition of the Tour de France Femmes by Zwift. But it's the men's races we'll return to here and together, what a story they told, particularly for Jumbo Visma. Get comfortable then and enjoy the ride, knowing that your support throughout the year is what allows us to travel to and provide daily coverage of the Grand Tours, particularly those of you who are friends of The Cycling Podcast. We simply could not do it without you. To sign up and help us again in 2024, go to thecyclingpodcast.com friends. It just remains for me to thank our sponsors, Science in Sport and MAP, and also David Luxton and everyone at DLA, Seb Piquet, Simon Gill, Greg and the team at Divine Sellers, Amara Terra, Stacey Snyder and many others who have made vital contributions. No one more so than our producers Adam Bowie, Will Jones, John Mooney, Hugh Owen and Tom Wally. Just absolutely finally, as I'm sure you'll hear and recognise, the short commentary clips in this episode come from Eurosport.
2: You are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast, at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are in Ortona.
1: The grand tour season would begin in the green heart of Italy, in Abruzzo to be precise, a land flanked by the turquoise waters of the Adriatic and overlooked by the still snow-capped peaks of the high Apennines. A majestic backdrop, and one in which my travelling companion for the three weeks, Brian Nygaard, or Il Barone as he would be known, had quickly made himself at home. Brian, Il Barone, you've already got a nickname one day into the Giro d'Italia, the Baron. Uh, Where are we? Well, first of all, thank you for that. (laughs) Unexpected.
3: Yeah, we're sitting, uh, looking at a fantastic landscape outside the tasting
1: room of the winery ifauri where we're lucky to be lodging wine token we should really say who we are what we are we're the second podcast we're at the giro d'italia this is giro vagando um you've already heard that in the intro haven't you brian we are at the tenuta ifauri drinking one stage down yeah drinking a uh, glass of pecorino a lovely glass of pecorino we might even film a bit of this podcast so people might even be able to see the beautiful scene describe the scene for those who won't see well we're looking at a
3: very sort of rolling hills high mountains in the background snow-capped and uh
1: we're looking at these beautiful vineyards I had driven from Rome through a corridor of those glistening summits while Brian had arrived from his actual home in Tuscany. It should be said that neither of our journeys had been as fraught as the one undertaken by the British debutant Thomas Kloge. The 21-year-old one of four reserves called in by Jumbo Visma, along with Rowan Dennis, Sam Oman and Sepp Kuss, remember that name, after COVID and crashes had torn through the Dutch team's ranks.
0: Off after Romandy, and I came back after four hours, and I I leave my phone on with the data off, and I I came back and was like, "Oh, I have about fifty missed notifications from every man and his dog on the team." So I was like, "Oh dear, this is not good." Um, I pick up the phone to Grisha, and he said, "I'll keep it short. You're going to the Giro," said, "Okay then," and uh, yeah, like that was basically. Well, the final call was made around five, and yeah, I was packing my bags, my bikes, because. You know, there were no bite, it wasn't, wasn't expected that I'd come here and got to the airport and yeah, I arrived in at half three, half three in the morning. So that was an eventful, it's been under 24 hours since, since I got the call. So.
1: Jumbo, of course, had one of the pre-race favourites in Roglic. On the Costa dei Trabocchi, he was one of many blown away by Hurricane Remco. But that evening was true to form, his usual stoic and enigmatic self, if not yet quite on form. Do you feel close to your best at the moment, physically?
4: Uh, yeah, the, I mean, I did a good time trial. And uh, like I said, uh, we see uh, day by day, week by week.
1: The stage had certainly been set, as Il Barone reflected over a glass of wine that evening. He would have to, ro- to rockify quite a lot of arrivals,
3: a lot of finish, a lot of bonus seconds to basically scrape back what he lost today. And it puts down a marker for, you know, the, the time trial that's in the horizon, which is almost twice as long. So it's, an, it's going to be an, an interesting race. And it's also the interesting dynamics in, in Remco getting the jersey this early because clearly he doesn't want to hold on to that no. for three weeks. I don't think that's realistic. And it's, it's a huge ask for any team and for, yeah, for any rider, really, even if the Giro is less
1: stressful than the Tour. In truth, over the next week, the GC would throw up meagre drama. And so, Brian and I would create some of our own with a series of detours. Some literal or geographical, others figurative or more thematic.
5: You must be out of your goddamn mind. Joe Lewis, the greatest boxer
6: ever lived. I'll be with you boys in a minute. He was bad in Captain Clay. He bad in Sugar Ray. He bad in
1: that, who that, you, the new boy had? got, Mike, Mike Tyson, looked like a bulldog. He bad in him too. He whip Mike Tyson there.
7: He whip all their ass. What about Rocky Marciano? Oh, there they go. There they go. Every time I start talking about boxing, a white man got to pull Rocky Marciano out their ass.
3: Well, Brian, what was that? Well, that was a dialogue from one of the great movies from the 1980s, Coming to America, where these fellas in a barbershop are talking about one of the greatest, maybe potentially the greatest, fighter of all time, Rocky Marciano.
1: Rocky Marciano, uh, iconic Eddie Murphy film. Brian, where are we now? Why is this relevant to where we are now? because we are standing in front of a life-size bronze
3: statue of Rocky Marciano. And uh, very close to where we're going today for the time trial is actually the birthplace of his father. Correct, we're in a place called Ripa uh,
1: Teatina. That was stage one. In the next few days, we'll provide the opportunity to introduce another fearless fighter. Alberto Grandi, a university professor from Parma, in the lead-up to the Girot had enraged his country folk with a series of interviews in which he'd claimed that most of Italy's much romanticized food culture was well late 20th century fake news Grandi was in the dock and on the pod
5: Eh, questa è una buona domanda. I've received
1: a lot of messages and a lot of emails, even offensive and kind of threatening ones. Because it's touched a very raw nerve for the Italians. It's all been very real. A large share of the animosity towards me is due to the fact that the Italian newspapers badly translated the first interview, the one I gave to the Financial Times, and so there was a lot of manipulation. The National Farmers Confederation was very manipulative in the way they used that interview, and the same with the Consortium of Parmesan Cheese Producers. They continue to do that and so fuel the hatred. The fact is that in Italy you eat very good things, but this has practically nothing to do with the history of Italy, or rather it's much more complicated than the way it's often told. The ridiculous story that's always told is that in Italy, Italians have always eaten well and we're the best. But then, as I always say, why did 25 million leave if they ate spaghetti, macaroni, pizza, meat stews and tortellini all day? In the end, as I always say, all I revealed is that Father Christmas doesn't exist, because I never said there'll be no gifts under the tree. I said there will be presents for everyone to unwrap. It's just that Father Christmas didn't bring
8: them.
1: Another distinguished scholar and friend of the cycling podcast, Professor John Dickey, came perilously close to aligning himself with the heresy.
9: I mean, we too are attached to the sort of rural myth of Italian food. You know, the the sort of Dolmio family out in the vineyard kind of vision uh, of Italian food, you know, those adverts for Mm. the awful pasta sauces. That's what we want Italian food to be. And in a way, I I suppose people find it quite endearing that Italians are so attached to this. In some ways, there's as much resistance in Britain, among people who love Italian food in Britain, as there is in Italy, or nearly as much, to the idea that this is largely a myth.
1: Speaking of fighters and rural Italian origins, Fabian Cancellara, aka Spartacus, was a fierce combatant in his day, and one whose family's roots could be located, and were by us, on the route of stage 3.
9: so
1: on Fabian who should we look for is there anyone still here that we can look for in, or should we just go to the bar and ask if anyone knows a cancellara?
3: yeah yeah go I'm curious I mean I can send you Brian
10: I can send you a, a, a phone number from Rocco my, my cousin
11: I don't know actually how it looks but I mean it's not a, it's not a rich region it's really like feet on the ground everything really like farmers
3: I
10: mean yeah, just how call that? Campagna. Yeah, that's us show how it is.
3: It's countryside, is beautiful here, Fabian. It's also like rolling hills. It's yeah, it, it's quite a stunning, yeah, yeah. The stunning it's, landscape.
11: I mean, I've been riding up to Monticchio, and uh, uh,
3: yeah, I mean, jumping into Monticchio never did because I was always scared that I never go up because uh, if you go down, you go down into this v- Vulcan. It's an it's an old Vulcan.
1: Or how come? Vulcano. Yeah, Brian's thinking of buying a house here, Fabian. He's thinking of moving. Ah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, no we are here via the research because we are following the tour of Italy and then we also ah, know him very well. So Brian, we have been we well, have been led by our two new friends. Voi vi chiamate come? Vito. Vito and uh, Vito and Giuseppe have brought us to the museum in Atella, where Lucia has, well, she's given us a guided tour of the ancient origins of this place and the the crowning glory of this museum. Well, we've got it in front of us. It's a tusk of something resembling a mammoth, a buffalo. Uh, you know, Fabian had mammoth-like qualities at times, didn't he? Exactly.
3: They? No, I mean, there's there's some, a lot of uh, there's some symbolic connections here. There's a mammoth. And he was most certainly a mammoth of uh, of the sport with all you know that he was able to do on the bike. But this is also a volcanic area. And as he mentioned on our call, like he went up there and was quite scared that they would erupt. But Fabian was someone who made the races erupt, you know, of volcanic. Um, we're really squeezing power. this here. I mean, we're I'm really, really straining. There is a, For a any kind of there bad is a metaphor connection.
1: or no, analogy which we specialize in. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of revelations. One, I got it totally—I got it totally wrong about the mammoth. It's more—it's an elephant, really, isn't it? And that was found here. I can, I can live with that. Yeah. the Second revelation from Giuseppe was that he well, just remembered that Lucia, who's been who's been, guide who's been showing museum. us around the museum, is a cancellara. Not only is she a cancellara, she's Fabian's cousin, and she was at his wedding. She was at his
3: wedding. It just, just goes to show what a small world it is. So I've actually asked her now to do a, a video message to Fabian because she hasn't seen him since, since, his, wedding. since his wedding. Allora Lucia, ci mando un messaggio a Fabian.
12: ciao Fabian, ciao cuginetto.
9: Vedi
1: Most of week one had been spent in Italy's deep south. Yet after five stages, it was the rider with the northernmost birthplace. Andreas Lechnersund of Tromso and DSM in the pink jersey. The race was barely stirring from its torpor, while the hearts and minds of Italian sports fans had been captured by the reawakening of a sleeping giant. Napoli's football team had won Los Scudetto after a 33-year wait. And it was to the city of Vesuvius Pizza, Sofia Loren, Maradona's glory years, and yes, our own Chiros con Emilio, that we headed on stage six. You've lived in Napoli, well, you lived in Napoli for a long time. You were a native of Napoli, you were born there. When was the first time, can you remember, you realised that being from Napoli in Italy meant something, it meant you were slightly different, it it sort of distinguished you from other Italians? Um, Maybe from the very beginning of my life in a
5: certain way, certainly I can't remember really the first years of my life, but since when I have memories, so uh, now unfortunately I'm almost 46, but when I was already... 10 years old, more or less, it was easy to understand that being a Napolitan in Italy means something uh, special. Oh mamma, 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 oh mamma, 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 sai perché mi batte il corazon,
7: ho visto Maradona, ho visto Maradona, hey mamma, innamorato son.
1: Well, Brian, we've made it to the sort of centerpiece of this living, breathing, shrine to Diego Maradona, even before, and the football team, I suppose, even before the events of last weekend. But on Sunday, we've mentioned it many times, Napoli did win Los Scudetto. They brought it back to the city. as the Italian... Football League Championship for the first time since 1990. They'd previously won it in 1987. It was Diego Maradona who very much orchestrated both of those victories. And since then, well, he has been a kind of Dios, uh, a god, in this very religious, very superstitious, very sort of, has a mystical air about it, doesn't it, this city? Yeah, it really does. And there's just such a, there's so
3: much life, the hustle and the bustle. It's almost like it's beyond the clichés you would I think when you're thinking about Napoli you know everyone is just like in a hurry I have no idea where they're going this entire neighborhood the Spanish uh, quarter of, uh, of Napoli is just packed blue flags posters anything that could really sort of resemble the colors of the team and yeah you, I think there's no way in this city if you look wherever left or right you'll either see a picture of Maradona
1: or a flag celebrating the Scudetto and Brian, why did Napoli, why did it glory so much in Maradona? Well, obviously because he was a fantastic player, but also because in, some, in one sense he sort of embodied the spirit of the tan. It was a great underdog story, wasn't it? He was this little sort of scamp from Argentina, and they identified with him immediately because there was, they saw some of that in themselves. And this year's team embodies some of that spirit as well. They've assembled players from unlikely sort of, football back quarters. They've picked up players that no one wanted or it's almost like moneyball yes yes and and consequently they see or they've talked about the symbolism as well of this team almost laying to rest maradona who died of course a couple of years ago
3: there's a sense of relief and there's when you, you can you can't be here or read about it or see it and think that this is just about football this is about so many other things it's about heart and soul of the city and how you know how they they need some kind of resurrection Uh, you know then maradona is not going to come back uh, from the dead but in a certain way he's never really died uh, for a lot of people in naples and i'm standing next to a a flag that says uh, in local dialect in this difficult moment you have um, gifted us with an immense joy and uh, there's i mean this is there's a lot of poverty here there's a lot of unemployment um, there's all kinds of social issues that somehow football, and now especially now, has sort of transcended for for the people of Naples. And you, you really see it and you really feel it. There's an energy here. I, I, I haven't seen anything like it, to be honest.
1: For Chiro, from here, the Corsarosa Rosa would quickly take a turn for the worse. Hey, I see a familiar face, but it seems to be on the phone. Go on, Brian, I don't want to... Wanna... Well, so Ciro, stride. Ciro. Ciro, Ciro,
3: Ciro. He's probably looking for the cable cars in Naples.
1: He's on his way, but Brian, yeah, try and continue while he makes his so, way. Okay, over. so the
3: peloton and I think it, the group that was behind, even far up at the climb, was still qualified to be a peloton. Should what we start with Ciro? Point.
1: Ciro, um, you made it down in the cable car. How was it up there? Uh, I just
5: came out of the elistas uh, from a real nightmare. <laughs> Because this morning I got up uh, in my bed with a marvelous view from my room of my apartment in Torre del Greco looking at the sea. And uh, the diameter appears uh, some hours later in Campo Imperatore. 2000 meters, snow, uh, a, a wind really chilly. What else?
1: The next day in Le Marque, an Irishman, Ben Healy's 50km solo carried echoes of yesteryear. Meanwhile Geraint Thomas was also rolling back the years. He and teammate Theo Gagan Hart resisted the first Roglic onslaught while Remco lost ground. Thomas clearly had lost none of his zip nor his mischievous streak.
10: He went a lot harder than I really wanted, I tried to just ride my pace. I stayed with Remco and then K to go. Remco tried to close and squeeze and I just kept going. Let him go. Look behind and like uh, like Almeida and Dunbar, people like that. So let them do a bit. Biding my time. And uh, Teo was just thinking exactly the same as me, basically. And we'd both accelerated the last, I don't know, 400 metres or so. He closed to Roglic. I was 10 metres off. And foah. Just went over the top, and uh, well, I knew I just had to close it there.
1: All sorts of rumours going around about Primoz's health. Some of them I think he's starting them, um, but he looked okay today, didn't he?
10: Yeah, not bad with a guy with COVID, is it? He? So he, had told me, he told me that yesterday that he had COVID, I was like, Right, okay, stay away from me then.
1: We've heard that a few times. Are we to believe him, or does he do this kind of thing often? Well, he always says he's got
10: bad legs, and ah, the race is harder. This is too hard. I go home. Then he goes and wins by 10 minutes, so who knows with him, but it's all mind games. Almeida said to me he had bad legs today as well, and I just think, well, if you really did, why would you tell me? I wouldn't tell him. But,
5: in, in your opinion, today Remco showed for the first time a little sign of weakness, or it's not really significant what happened in the
10: final? Ah, When it comes to Remco, you expect him to be the one lighting up the race, so when he doesn't and he loses a bit of time, it's a bit of a surprise, but... End of the day, it's seconds, you know, and might be an off day, but he's a special, special guy, so certainly not getting carried away there.
1: Avonapur hit back to win the TT in Emilia-Romagna, though two natural disasters were about to strike. Number one, catastrophic only for the Giro, Remco positive for COVID and out of the race while in pink. The second, a real tragedy the dire floods that ravaged the region the Jira was leaving behind, causing 16 deaths and costing 23,000 people their homes. The race was now led by Thomas, with Roglic in second, Gagan Hart in third, all of them well acquainted with the kind of misfortune that had befallen Avonapool. Our rest day interview with Gagan Hart featured a meditation on precisely this.
13: Yeah, I think I've been, you know, Fight in the last couple of years with a lot of setbacks, and um, meanwhile, in you know some of the happy moments of my life in those years personally, and um, and finding a lot of um, amazing people, and and yeah, an amazing partner, and and a lot of happiness. So I would always say that any athlete needs to you know to have uh, validation away from their sport because there's so many uncontrollables within sport and especially cycling more than any we were just talking about it at lunch actually about um you know the dangers that we face on a on a daily basis um i've always believed that to make it as a cycle you have to be really used to things not going your way even if that's when you were 15 16 years old that you punctured in a race or Mm. yeah of course crashes but but also bad days and, and all the rest of it and I think that in order to then be happy within this sport you have to be able to find an ability to remove yourself from from that and and to continue to be a normal functioning person otherwise I don't personally I don't really see how that's sustainable I think if you can't uh, be happy irregardless of, of how it's gone then uh, it's going to be hard to enjoy the sport because. Many times it is out of your hands, um, and that's uh, the nature of the, the beast, really.
5: And on the right-hand side there, down and Gagin. not really good, it's Gegenhart. It's Teo Gegenhart who is down.
1: Alas, Gagin that Gagin level-headedness Gagin would be put to the test again within hours as Teo crashed out on stage 11 to Tortona, shattering his hip. His season and seven-year stint with Ineos ended there. Meanwhile, Remco's exit had its own postscript, one of polemica, a language in which his team manager, Patrick Lefebvre, is fully proficient. Or well, certainly was when Pierre Bergonzi wrote in La Gazzetta dello Sport that perhaps the bimbo d'oro had fled the Giro upon realising that he couldn't win. Patrick, I believe you're here in the press room on an undiplomatic mission. You wanted to see some of my colleagues from La Gazzetta dello Sport because you were pretty upset with what Pierre Bergonzi wrote this morning.
11: I'm not upset. I'm more uh, uh, deception, how you call it. I'm disappointed. Disappointed because I thought he was a man with a lot of class. But this morning he proved uh, he's totally wrong. He almost never come to the race. Don't speak to the teams and the riders. And then he read write this. This is really hitting under the
1: yeah, below the belt yeah because he he said that it was an excuse, basically he said that it was an excuse that Remco felt that he was going to lose the Giro I mean, uh, do you think it's libelous maybe, you going to look uh, can you
11: go home if you have the Malia Rosa, come 55 seconds on the second so this is the most crazy thing I ever heard in my life
1: are you thinking of taking legal action?
11: we should do it I don't say we will do it, but we should do it. We did one error, that's true. I was at home, but uh, one of my DS had to call uh, Venny to to, to tell them, but he didn't run away because he took the car next morning at 9.30, so it's not that he ran away in the middle of the night like a thief.
1: Another elder statesman among team managers, Gianni Savio, paid us a visit in Bra the following day. His team weren't invited this year, but of course, it would not be the Giro without Gianni. Your team's not at the Giro. We miss you a lot, Gianni. We miss the Modulo every day. We miss the formation. But you're watching the Giro. What do you think of the Giro so far? Is it a a nice Giro, a bel Giro? Thank you. Um, The Giro, unfortunately,
8: this year... uh, had not uh, luck riders uh, out for COVID, riders out for accident. Uh, it would be very interesting uh, with uh, two Ineos and uh, and uh, even and uh, Roglic and also with Almeida, but now <laughs> just we have only only one Ine- Ineos. Roglic and
1: we must see for uh, Almeida. Uh, pronostico Gianni, uh, prediction. Pronostico secco, nome secco chi vince il Giro. <laughs> Who's going to win the Giro?
8: Yes, very, very difficult uh, because, uh, because uh, you see that uh, each day may uh, happen <laughs> not. Uh, uh, always good, but also bad. So, uh, cycling uh, is uh, a sport uh, um, imprevable. Unpredictable sport? Yes, yes, yes. But if uh, if you ask me only one name, I think Roglic.
1: That was indeed a day of several curious and charming cameos
6: wasn't it and we saw Francesco Moser's our record bike yeah very good day that
1: I remember and just, of course just just one second Lionel We're talking about campionissimi oh. campionissimi you you maybe carry on for a second Ciro vieni qua <laughs> vieni qua siamo oh, in diretta siamo in diretta
14: con Lionel
1: Ciro. al telefono Salutalo.
5: ciao Lionel Lionel <laughs>
1: Ciao, Ciro. Ciao, but I, I, oh. w-
5: we are live only with you or with all the listeners? So I don't understand.
6: Uh, just me, but also all the listeners in a way. Ah, okay. I, I mean, uh,
5: you, I, I think that uh, <laughs> you are one of the most important listeners, dear Lionel.
6: <laughs> oh, Ciro, Ciao. It, your your voice puts a smile on no, my face and uh, I just want to say congratulations to Napoli for winning uh, Los Scudetto. Thanks, Fantastic. thanks.
1: Ciro, time is ticking for your... Time is ticking for your Gazzetta dello Sport career because we know, you know, you're into your last two years no. now, so you better get back in there and write some pieces before you leave us forever.
5: We could also say, in uh, um, quoting a son of Muse, time is running out.
1: <laughs> Chiro, not our only friend with an army of adoring fans, even if, in some cases, it was a one-man army.
2: Larenzando a postcard from Italy, with Larry Warbass.
1: Well, Larry, sorry to, to take you away from your adoring fan your yeah. one-man fan club. Were you familiar with this fan club you had in Brian in Piemonte, in Italy? Actually, him I was aware of, because he always comes to Milano San Remo and after a picture every year, so he's uh, probably my most loyal fan other than my mom. Ivano, so you are... You're the only member. You're definitely the president of the Larry Warbass fan club.
15: I'm not the only member. There is also my wife, and uh, we are uh, so passionate about uh, Larry Warbass. Uh, from his travel in uh, when uh, his uh, team failed, and uh, he traveled in this area, he come here with
1: With, Connor, the, with Dunn.
15: Yeah, for the No Go Tour, they come uh, here in uh, Piemonte. Uh, and we contact him uh, for supporting in uh, some uh, part of his travel and uh, so we became so passionate about him I like also when he was uh, USA national champions I really loved his jersey
1: The Motown maestro was indeed our son on many a cloudy day and no stage looked gloomier, colder or wetter than number 13 to croix Montana in Switzerland, at least according to a forecast which duly prompted a last-minute and highly contentious route change. The reality proved to be somewhat different. Brian, 12.32 local time, Swiss time, I can see you smiling. You look delirious to be in Switzerland. I'm very happy. I, I love this country. The scenery, and we're being treated on that front as we head down the Grand Saint bernard um, yeah, it just makes me feel good being here. Anyway, just looking at the dashboard of our car, 12 degrees centigrade, and roads uh, completely dry.
3: Even patches of sun here.
1: Yes. Um, been messaging a few riders this morning and, well, they don't really know what to think. It's
3: also, I mean, there's a lot of people who need to agree on on what the what best decision is and after the severe weather protocol, everyone gets their say and we've seen before that was that structure was put in place there was just a lot of polemica also because it wasn't communicated very well what the decision making was and yeah there's always there would always be one of those parts in disagreement and today i'm that part because i mean no disrespect but this is like actually
1: best conditions we've had on the Giro, and yeah Not even a particularly facetious comment. They look pretty perfect. The conditions, Um, obviously not too hot, but perfectly dry. Some blue sky, as you say, beautiful snow-capped mountains in the background. And I suppose the bottom line is, we are actually going to have an exciting stage, and we're not uh, we're not going to have too much of a decapitated stage either. Because at one stage this morning, leaving Ivrea we were pretty convincing the weather there and I looked at my weather app it said 100% chance of rain all day we thought the stage would probably be cancelled I mean look there's completely blue skies on the horizon yeah so at least we've got those last two climbs the two hardest climbs that were originally on the day's route and um, well it's it's going to be a stage worthy of it's pre-race billing I think The return to Italy brightened Brian's mood. Bergamo and its walls of rapturous Tifosi finally adding a recognisable Giro flavour. Well,
10: Daniel here is the main cool.
3: I mean, I can barely see the riders here. There's so many people.
8: Mamma mia, Daniel!
11: Another
3: waiting, but they certainly got the spectacle they were looking for. Allora, signore, come era tenere il percorso qua? An energy Lombardia, but proprio il tour
5: d'Italia. Per un italiano, è fantastico. Nella nostra città, poi, è meraviglioso.
1: Finally, the real mountains were on our horizon, and with it, the promise of an end to the GC deadlock which had lasted over a week. But before that, on the road to Monte Bondone, there was one more whimsical diversion, at least in our car. Well, Brian, we picked up a way for Stray on the route of the Giro d'Italia. We're joined by our good friend today, who needed a lift, Leonardo Piccione, of well, the podcast that we mention almost every day. On our podcast, Gironimo, it's our Italian sister podcast. And I thought it'd be interesting to speak to Leonardo, we've had him on the podcast before, but of all of, you know, we we spend every day sort of searching, scrambling around for interesting colour stories on the Giro, we look for riders with strange passions, hobbies and so on, strange life stories. Leonardo's is pretty unusual, because Leonardo, we've known him for a few years now, follows the Giro, so podcaster, journalist in May, the rest of the year he does something completely different. He works in Leonardo. Is it a volcano museum in the very north of Iceland? Have I got that right?
2: Uh, it used to be a volcano museum, but now, since two years, we changed it, it into a Eurovision museum <laughs> because yeah, in the town where I live <laughs> in Iceland, almost the same. In Husavik, in the northern part of Iceland, Netflix came two years ago and they shot this Eurovision movie with Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. It was a very popular movie and we decided. I suggested actually to my Icelandic friends to open an exhibition, a museum dedicated to the Eurovision Song Contest and this movie.
1: My head is hurting. I'm trying to untangle this <laughs> in my brain. I'm trying to think of what is the most appropriate next question to ask. But you're from Puglia, yes. first of all. Yes. How did this happen? How did. Well, how, how did you go to. Why did you go to Iceland in the first place?
2: Yes, I went there the first time seven years ago while I was finishing my PhD in statistics. I was in England actually, in Oxford, Jesus and I, <laughs> I realized that that was not my life. I mean, I wanted to finish the PhD, but I realized okay, you when I'm my
1: future is cycling volcanoes in Eurovision. And Eurovision, no, <laughs> An on that one.
2: <laughs> no, I just went for a holiday in Iceland. There were like very cheap flights from London. I spent two weeks as a tourist, like many people do, and I realized while I was in Iceland that that place had something special for me, that there was a special connection between myself and Iceland, so I decided to go back, volunteering in a library, and then working in, a, in another small museum, and then I started writing this volcano book, and I'm still there now.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. And where, uh, at what point did cycling come into the story, or was it always, has it always been a passion of yours?
2: It's always been a passion of mine, Uh, you know, uh, I I come from a region which is not really uh, into the, you know, a a big region for cycling tradition in Italy, Puglia, we don't even have like a professional cyclist at the moment, I, I think, so watching Giro on television in May for me was something exotic, I would say, because I could see finally mountains, I grew up far away from mountains, you know, in a very, very... Got mountains on we're driving the Brennero
1: motorway towards mm-hmm. Austria effectively it's got mountains left and right today
2: yeah and yeah for me maybe you know for every Italian student is the end of the school the school ending is near and then you have this thing going on on TV where you can learn about your own country and places that most of the times you don't see. Almeida
15: there the as they get
5: to 100 metres to go. It's Joao Almeida looking for those bonus seconds. Almeida who started the party. And look at this for Joao Almeida. Stage win for Almeida. And in the meantime, Thomas puts the G in the Giro and takes the Maglia Rosa.
1: Joao Almeida's victory on Monte Bondone, with Roglic struggling, made the case for the Portuguese or Thomas to be crowned in Rome. But thus far, it had been an underwhelming Giro played by the rain enlivened mainly by breakaway artists or the human interest stories of fringe characters if the race had a cult hero it was the Canadian amateur ornithologist Derek G who could also boast his own song more fans than Larry Warbass and several nicknames Derek G Derek G Derek G Derek G speaking words of wisdom Derek G.
0: Oh, I don't get it at all. <laughs> no, I don't. No, but I mean, I'm not complaining. It's been really, really nice. Um, it's it's weird reading things about about myself on the internet, um, but so far they've all been really nice things. So, um, no, it, it's been for sure inexplicable to me. But
16: uh, yeah, I'm loving it. <laughs>
1: I've met, I bumped into Derek G. fans. An increasing number of Derek G. fans on the on the Giro d'Italia route. I think there was some at the bus today. Really? For Derek G., yeah, who were sort of welcomed onto the bus. So that'll be you tomorrow. You'll be getting all the VIP treatment on the Israel Premier Tech bus. Um, what? Which of these nicknames, these candidates for his nickname, do you
15: prefer? I think uh, the Ottawa Osprey is a solid one, but the Loon uh, represents all of Canada. And so I think the Loon... Um, I mean, the Beaver would have been good, but I realise it doesn't fly. I <laughs> um, been problematic. Yeah, <laughs> so I think the Loon. I'm, I'm voting for the Loon. We're hoping for a stage win, uh, but we'll be there with the loon the whole way regardless, cheering him on. The important thing is that he completes the Giro and uh, continues flying.
1: Sadly, Derek wouldn't get his stage win and neither would Antal Marché sprinter Anna Marit. Marit's tears in Carle, though. A reminder that just to compete in the Giro is, by definition, to strike a bargain with fate. And the risk? No, in fact, the probability of anguish, disappointments, even broken dreams. Can I just ask you in English what happened?
4: Yeah, I was actually perfectly positioned in the last corner. I took the inside because I knew uh, when I'm on the outside, I have no space uh, to launch my sprint. And actually, I was in sixth position. In the moment with 250, 300 to go, and then, yeah, the moment when I accelerate, my chain goes off. So, uh, yeah, I think I had the legs to win, and, uh,
6: fuck.
1: You obviously invested a lot of emotion in this opportunity today. Yeah, I'm actually suffering already.
17: The whole Giro, just for this stage, and, yeah today I felt it was possible to win my first Grand Tour (laughs) Um, just things didn't work out Um, actually everything went perfect till 2.50 to go and it's always difficult for me to position and now I wasn't positioned and now my chain
4: drops at 2.50 to go so a lot of suffering in the mountains to get here yeah indeed I was also sick before the rest day and I, I kept on suffering
1: because I knew this day would come and, um, yeah, I have no words for this. One more chance in Rome. Thank you, Arna, thank you. For no one, though, were the stakes higher than for Thomas and Roglic. Almeida had slipped back. The Trecima di Lavaredo produced a stalemate. And now they were heading for their winner-takes-all fight to the death at Monte Luxari on the doorstep of Slovenia
10: luckily I had the legs to respond to Primoz when he went and uh, then it was a bit of cat and mouse I went 400 to go and uh, after about 100 metres I realised that's a long way at altitude um, but yeah then just tried to, to press onto the line and uh, so yeah a decent day yeah uh,
11: Roglic snuck three seconds at the end is that a worry
18: and do you think that's got to do with his bike change
10: well, I wouldn't say it's a worry but uh, you know he came past me and I was just sort of like what Kind of almost thought I was at the line, but when it's that steep, you've got to keep pushing. And I was like, oh, blimey, still need to get there. But uh, now, yeah, uh, the bike change and stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, their bike's on the weight limit and ours is pretty close as well. So, but uh, yeah, it's just all down to tomorrow now.
11: Yeah, tomorrow, uh, anything,
10: uh, what are you going to do? Your bike change, what's the second bike going to be? Ah, well, it's just, uh, you know, we'll start on the TT bike, jump onto the road bike, and then, uh, like we have, same one I've been riding here and, uh, yeah, it'll just be 5K at like 15% or something crazy. So we'll just um, try and pace it all the way to the line. It's a decent advantage, you know, I'd rather have that than have the deficit, but uh, it's gonna be super hard. You know, Primoz is riding really well. Almeida is great at pacing himself, so it's certainly not over. I'm just gonna have to, uh, yeah, get up there as quickly as I can.
4: It was fun. Huh? And tomorrow we go full again, huh? Ah, Tag yeah. Much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good, huh? Uh, got a bit legs back, so uh, yeah, uh, tomorrow we go full, huh? You go
15: for confident for the time trial
4: tomorrow? Uh, I mean, if, if I wouldn't be confident that I don't start, uh, so of course, uh, and uh, yeah, the best one I did visa.
1: 26 seconds was Thomas's advantage. kilometres the distance standing between him and a second Grand Tour title or between Roglic and a sort of poetic reversal of his Via Crucis to La Planche des Belles Filles three years earlier The next day was quite simply one of the most dramatic in recent pro cycling history we experienced it on the mountaintop in thrilling, throbbing Technicolor 3D so what have you written say, say, what happens if he doesn't? If he doesn't?
11: Yeah. It will be a sad day,
1: anyway. but we will uh, drink. Who do you prefer, Rogla or Pogacar? Uh, I prefer Rogla. I, prefer uh, Rogla. It, I hear that a lot from Slovenians. Why? I, I think because uh, Rogla was the... In Slo- Slovenian, part. yes,
19: he was the first in Slovenia, and this his story, you know, he start from the young jumping and, and he started cycling at
8: 23,
20: 24 years old.
1: Okay, <laughs> hey, make some noise! Throw,
20: throw throw away,
1: ajde.
20: Ajde, 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 Na glas!
19: Na glasi, Look at the people. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean they're definitely not here for me, but uh, a small part of me uh, hopes that uh, they are also enjoying, uh, yeah, me riding to the finish and uh, just as much as I am uh, enjoying them. And I'm just happy they're having that much of a party, and I, I hope they're gonna make a really, really big party for Primoz. Uh, Especially after he finishes. <laughs> I didn't, didn't get all of your interview in Dutch, but I did hear I'm not nervous. That's what you said to our Dutch colleagues, why not? No, no, uh, no no no. I'm, I'm definitely nervous. I'm fucking nervous. I can't uh, uh, yeah, I almost couldn't sleep yesterday. I no, I'm uh, I'm definitely nervous. I think I'm more nervous than Primo, so I oh, know oh, no.
15: up and running
5: again.
1: Seconds from now. 16 seconds, 16. Ronald <inaudible> Roglic coming in. He's approaching the last kilometer. We've seen. We've seen his chain come off, we've seen his teammates will turn away in disbelief. Adi Engels, the, the, the Vismo direct sport team standing close to me, he turned away in disbelief. Standing next to Slovenian National Television commentator, he's gonna be commentating in real time. We've seen the final intermediate split and Roglic is not out of it. Roglic is 40 seconds ahead of Almeida at the last intermediate split. Here he comes. Um,
11: it's not over, it's not over and Primoz at the time with Katenin has taken the most valuable effort. Don't look at to him. He has a very 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 strong effort for Primoz. Mejda is the first one in that And Primoz is the first
1: 44-23 for Roglic. 42 seconds better than that on Mejda. It's not over. It's not over. Roglic, we've seen 36 seconds def- deficit for Geraint Thomas on Primoz Roglic. He's still got a kilometer or so to go, standing next to the Slovenian national television commentator, and he, well, his eyes have just lit up, cannot believe what we've just seen. With Thomas 400 meters to go, it looks... As though he's got it in the bag. He's got redemption after the Blanche de Belfi. Incredible turnaround. What a performance from Roglic today. What an extraordinary ride he's done. Abject heartbreak for Garrett Thomas. The Yumbo Visma Visma celebrations already started. You can hear them, you can hear them. Enormous scrum of Yumbo Visma riders behind the finish line. Sepkus raising a bike above his head. What a contrast, what a contrast with the Ineos Grenadiers riders who are now emerging from behind the podium, looking crestfallen and Lawrence de Plus, Tymon Aronsman as well, now coming out. Ciro, can you believe what we've just seen? No, 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 no. But uh, normally
5: for me, I don't think that my life changed. <laughs> <But> Ciro, <laughs> but, that was that was one of the most spectacular
1: finales. We, really, you, or I, really have ever seen. Uh, and it's obviously, in a Grand Tour. it's
5: hot. Uh, it's really outstanding. I mean, uh, obviously, I don't want to compare uh, with uh, Lemon Fignon in the Champs Elysees in eighty uh, nine. But we
1: are close. Eh, I we think are close. We, we are close. We are close. Yeah. The, 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 the chorus of Primoz, Primoz, had broken out, echoing out across the valley. Garen, how how tough is this to take?
6: Yeah,
10: I'm pretty gutted. But uh, I said earlier if I'd been told this back in February, March, I probably would have bit your hand off. But now I'm uh, devastated. So, but I think once it sinks in, I can be proud of what we did. And um,
8: Yeah, it is what it is.
1: And that, indeed, was the 2023 Giro that was. A race that for most of its journey had seemed to advance with a heavy gait, a furrowed brow, an afflicted air, only to finally unburden itself on the final weekend with Roglic's resuscitation, Thomas's class and generosity in defeat, and another revival... Cavendish to win in Rome. Milan's
21: out the game. It's going to be a fairy tale. There's a crash behind, but it's Mark Cavendish. Mark Cavendish. Enjoy it. Savor
5: it. Remember it. The world's best. Ecco l'abbraccio anche con Alberto Dainese, una grande vittoria. Si trova nel suo abbraccio tutti i pallini. Una straordinaria vittoria, lui può sprintare a casa. Nuovo è ad uncesso. Apri muore
1: Well, Bob Ryan, Il Barone, what we heard there was a familiar voice, Ciro, Ciro d'Italia, Ciro Scogna Emilio. Speaking in uh, not an unfamiliar language, but not the language he's usually speaking on the cycling podcast. Ciro was in amongst it. He was right in the scrum. He was there to witness history being made. We were not. We were not for reasons we'll explain later in the podcast. We weren't in Rome, but Ciro was. This Giro d'Italia over the last few days, it's had more redemption stories than a first print run of the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, (laughs) Quite extraordinary. Yumbo Visma's Giro had begun in turmoil and it had ended in victory. They were now heading to the tour, and of course, so were we.
20: The Cycling
0: Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
9: You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Tour de France.
6: Let's go back to the summer, the long hot days and bright sunshine, and to the bus country, because the 2023 Tour de France started in Bilbao, the city of the Guggenheim. We'd hired Simon Gill's camper van to act as a Cycling Podcast Broomwagon for the Tour, and Simon suggested we take the ferry to Santander from Portsmouth, partly to make the journey easier, partly to keep the miles off the van. A very good idea. A few weeks before the tour, I asked him for the details of the ferry crossing, and he was strangely evasive. After I'd asked a few times, he admitted that the ferry was actually leaving from Plymouth, not Portsmouth, meaning we'd have to leave a day earlier than I'd initially thought, and stop overnight in Exeter. I invested in some seasickness tablets and obsessively checked the weather forecast, having heard some horror stories about rough crossings in the Bay of Biscay. But as it turned out, the sea was perfectly calm and the journey was very relaxing. Once in Bilbao, we went to the team presentation, then waited for Mitch Docker and Francois Tomazot to arrive before heading to the football stadium, home of Athletic Bilbao, for the Grand Depart. As you'd expect, Mitch threw himself into things with his
9: usual gusto. You are listening to the cycling podcast of the 2023 Tour de France. Today, we are in Bilbao.
6: Well, that was the sound of the Basque fans at the start outside the football stadium, the home of Athletic Club de Bilbao, counting down to signal the start of the 2023 Tour de France and here we are. My name is Lionel Burney. This is a cycling podcast and we're going to be with you until Paris. Not quite with us until Paris is Mitch Docker, but welcome Mitch. You're going to be telling us what life is really like in the peloton, aren't you? You're rocking the the Basque beret. You've been rocking that beret since we got here in Bilbao yesterday.
7: Why not? Why not? When in Rome, as I say, like if i wear that some outside of here people will look at me strangely yet you can walk down the street here in this and you no one even flutters an eyelid you know this is yeah. everybody I believes
9: in. your best i, I mean, do that's for sure
7: yeah
6: <laughs> no, <laughs> no. It's, no worries. it's the combination though mitch it's the moustache the mullet the beret it's the perfect look for the grande Départ weekend of the tour de france and of course we are here with francois thomaso Still insisting that this is his final Tour de France. Uh, it is. Uh, it is. Yeah. It, well, some of the things you've said today suggest <laughs> mm. that your dislike of the kind of humid press room and the crowded area outside the team buses, I'm starting to believe you sadly. Over the course of the weekend, we delved into the Basque Country's history, sporting heritage and culinary culture.
14: I think that there are a number of reasons, but number one, we have a very challenging ge- geography. And I think that uh, naturally, when uh, the bicycle was the main mean of transport, was that naturally was going to create some really good sportsmen. Because here in the Basque country, if you take a bicycle, for example, and you start riding, uh, you wouldn't be able to cycle for three or four kilometers without fighting a little hill. You know it's a very hilly place so i think that the challenge in geography is one of the main things then i think that the sports are very linked to the natural environment you've got and the weather conditions for example this is not the place for golf or for tennis for instance this is a place for rowing because we have a sea and we have many rivers this is a place for hiking because we have many mountains uh, for rural sports like for example log cutting or tree cutting or, for example, cycling. This is a place for cycling. And I think that uh, our geography was mainly mainly the thing that made uh, this place very prone to to cycling as a sport. Sports, as I said before, are uh, very linked to our natural geography, our conditions. For example, in the mountains, they still play or they still do perform uh, a stone lifting, but uh, and rather professionally. Uh, in fact, uh, this is a trivia for everyone. The opening stage
6: started and finished in Bilbao and it turned into the Tour de Yates with Ineos Grenadier Adam pipping Jacob Alula Simon to the stage win and the first yellow jersey of the race. We heard from one of the people who knows the brothers best, Matt White. Matt, you've probably known the Yates brothers longer than pretty much anybody in professional cycling. When they were coming into the finish line there together, did you think... It was more likely to be Adam or more likely to be Simon that would get the win?
21: Uh, well, I'm a glass half full kind of person, so I was certainly hoping it was Simon. Uh, they, ha- they are so, well, they're, they're twins and their characteristics and their numbers and everything is very, very similar. Um, so it wouldn't have been a surprise whoever won, really. And it's obviously those sort of arrivals who's, who's saved a little bit more, who's done a little bit less. You now I noticed Adam was working on the climb to, to really push the pace and then got distance. Simon came across to the group. So they both had obviously hard rides. I didn't see how they eventually slipped away. I think it was probably just uh, people looking at each other and and, uh, one went, then the other one got across. But, uh, yeah, it could have gone either way and it's gone Adam's way
6: today. You said that when they were both on your team, you used to keep them apart, so they didn't really race against one another. Probably the first time we've seen them go head-to-head like that.
21: Yeah, it is. It is because uh, even last year, the last couple of years when... uh, when Adam was on INEOS, again, they didn't have programs. Simon's done you know, five or six Giro's in a row. Adam hasn't been to the Giro for six or seven years. And then uh, when they have gone to the Tour de France before, one was there for stages, one was there for general classification. So they've always had different goals. And uh, yeah, it probably was the first time they've gone head-to-head as professionals today.
6: I mean, they're brothers. They love each other, of course. But there's a they're the ruthless streak in both of them, isn't there? I mean, just remind me of the story from the Tour of Turkey. Um, you remember that one where one of the brothers had crashed? Solomon crashed
21: and broke his collarbone, and uh, Adam ended up winning the tour. But yeah, no, I don't remember the the, the story behind it. I just remember that I just remember those two. Uh, that was the, one of their first tours, and uh, Adam's first victory uh, with us.
6: I think you said that you you said, "Oh, your brothers crashed," and he said, "Keep your eyes on the race." <laughs>
21: yeah, yeah. Look, they. they they, I've been also been in the team car where one was, one was winning in Paranese and one was winning, in, they won the same day, one in Paranese and one in Toronto and the other and I'm pretty sure it was, I had Adam with me at the time and he wanted to know how Simon was going over in Paranese in the jersey, so during the race so yeah, they, they are tight brothers um, but yeah, they, they're both winners that's for sure.
6: And lastly for me, I mean second place on the stage well placed, another very similar San Sebastian classic style stage tomorrow gives you possibilities I guess
21: Yeah, I think uh, the climb is longer tomorrow, um, but there's also more time for riders to come back. I think it's 16 kilometres off the back of the the ice skibble. It all depends on how hard they go and how selective it is. There was a couple of guys who I would have expected to be there today uh, who weren't, but it certainly uh, gives more opportunity for someone like Walt tomorrow uh, because obviously he's climbing very well. Uh, and I'm pretty sure Jumbo uh, yeah, obviously came here to win the tour but they want to give they want to give uh, Walt some opportunities and it's a very good one for him tomorrow.
6: A crash on the run-in caused two team leaders to abandon the race practically before it had started. EF Education easy post Richard Carapaz and Movistar's Enric Mass were out of the tour. They weren't the only casualties of the day our friend Simon the photographer had his foot run over by a team car on the climb and hobbled down the hill until he could get a lift with another photographer, Chris Old. Fortunately, nothing was broken, but Simon's foot did swell up rather alarmingly overnight. That evening we feasted on Basque Black Pudding, appropriate when Brothers from Berry, the home of Black Pudding, finished first and second on the stage. The next day, the San Sebastian classic had come early. Pogacar and Vingegaard went hell for leather for the bonus seconds at the top of the Heisgebel climb, but at the finish in the city centre, the day was all about Cofidis, who ended their long drought. A 15-year wait for a Tour stage win was finally over. And as I said, Sylvain Chavanel in mont stage 19 of the 2008 Tour de France. 115 different riders have won Tour stages since then, including Chavanel for Quick-Step. So Cofidis' long drought, I mean, for a team of their budget, their longevity, they've been in the peloton since 1997, I mean, just a little potted history, Francois, I mean, this is Cyril Guimard's team that kind of succeeded the Renault and System U teams, wasn't it? It was uh, kind of the, the French super team of the late 90s, early 2000s, of course, they signed Lance Armstrong yeah, they uh, did before the, the team started. He was recovering from his testicular cancer, never actually pulled on the jersey in a race for them, of course, no. there was a
9: bit of a Legal dispute, wasn't there? Yeah, and and then Guimard left, also left the team, and and what what happened later, as you know as well, that they, they were like many other teams, they had their d- own doping scandal, uh, in which actually Cedric Vasseur was in the team at the time, uh, they, they, they were taken to the to the police, uh, questioned. Remember uh, Philippe Gaumont, I mean, they there lots of uh, of riders. Well, David Miller, of course. Yeah, David, I mean, Miller, David Miller was one of the most, won a, won most, most prominent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah so so there, there was a huge moment of trouble for the team but after it, it two never...
6: stages in the spanish basque country the tour returned to french soil although it was still in proudly basque territory in the town of bayonne jasper philipson of alpacin de Kernick won the first of his four stages and that night we saw francois at his angriest a rare sight indeed when the restaurant he booked cancelled our reservation without explanation they were exceptionally busy because the tour de france was in town francois was told Yes, we know, that's why we booked, he replied. We ended up with leathery stakes at a pavement cafe, albeit one with a very pleasant view of the river, and then made a detour to an Irish pub for a game of darts. Mitch, a novice on the hockey, took to it with his usual aplomb, and before the night was over, he was googling dartboards of France to see where we could have them rematch. The next day, a snoozy stage finished on the paul Armagnac motor racing circuit in Nogaro. There was a big crash which claimed a number of victims, including Sudal Quicksteps' Fabio Jakobsen. Philipsen took his second consecutive stage, then we headed to Poe for roast beef and Yorkshire pudding at a British-owned restaurant, Les Roast-Beefs, and another game of darts, of course. Stage 5 saw an early rendezvous with the Pyrenees. Jai Hindley got into the 17-man break over the Col de Marie Blanc. He won the stage and took the yellow jersey from
7: Adam Yates. The best thing about Jai is that he leads... With that attitude he has with the team, that's why they love working for him. We heard about this in the Giro. The guys just love his attitude in the bus. Very cool, calm, collected, relaxed, and that's how he is. It's the same team here. I was speaking to Gasper at the start as well, and he he just emphasised the fact that that's just Jai. He's very relaxed. So it's not just the relaxed atmosphere. He's just a, I don't know how to explain. He's just a really cool guy to be around. He's got this real cool calm aura um he's a guy who loves the tradition of cycling he's one of the one of the new generation that understands you know because of his father too he sort of you know he made him understand eddie merckx and the, and the culture of cycling you know and painted the picture for him and I, I love that about jai so i feel like it is dying out the young guys that come in and you ask them these questions like eddie who okay that's an extreme example but he really loves cycling for what it is you know the the culture the, you know, the tradition And so that's what I love about, you know, and the Giro d'Italia story is once he won the pink jersey, he took it his own pink jersey into the museum and donated it. This is a beautiful thing. I can't imagine anyone else, I wouldn't have even thought of that idea myself, you know. And I, I love that about him. So he really loves the whole story of cycling.
6: Behind Hindley, Jonas Vingegaard attacked and gained a minute and four seconds on today. Pogachar. had Pog lost the tour before it had really got going, but it leaves Pogachar with real work to do now, doesn't it? And we know that he's fearless. We know that he's undercooked, perhaps, perhaps mm. today with evidence of that. But we also know that he probably has the capacity to, you know, improve over the course of the tour. It, it might be that he's just not quite at the level required today, but actually, you know, as the race goes on, he'll be able to ride himself in and be more of a threat to Wienegaard. It was almost time to say farewell to Francois, who was retiring for the press room and the podcar, and saying farewell to friends and colleagues at his spiritual home, the hotel and restaurant Le Viscos, after more than 35 laps of France. We were treated to a 10-course tasting menu of Chef Alexi's greatest hits.
9: And uh, well, Saint-Savin is a place that is dear to my heart, uh, and it's part of my Tour de France history because of the place that makes Saint-Savin famous these days. Le Viscos, famous restaurant and a hotel, and uh, where well, actually we we've gone almost every year since uh, 1999 or 2000, well, almost a quarter of a century, uh, coming back to Le Viscos for dinner, drinks. Uh, sometimes covering doping stories we would organise you know kind of uh, rival press rooms in the mm. in the courtyard of Le Viscos to cover the race and uh, yeah so it, it was obvious to me that I had to spend my last day on the Tour de France at Le Viscos and so not far from Le Viscos and that's where we are it's one of your happy places isn't it Francois yeah I mean uh, that th- mean the landlords uh, kind of became li- li- like like family, and it's also a, 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 a real a real hot spot of the Tour de France because lots of. Journalists, lots of riders or former riders come here nola know Le Viscos, come to this place to, to give you just an example. At the next, We're sitting at the terrace of a little brasserie that the Viscos owners open. And guess who's sitting at the next table? Christian Prudhomme and, and all the, the big shots of the Tour de France uh, ha- having a beer with the local authorities. This is the place to be, and it, it is one we kind of discovered with a couple of friends 25 years ago.
6: Even bigger news of Francois vacating his nest was stage six when Pog struck back at Cotere Cambasque, winning the stage and almost halving his deficit to Jonas Vingegaard.
9: I'm I'm more a Pogacar man than a Vingegaard guy for from, from fan for from many reasons, which I exposed already. But yesterday when I when I saw you know Pogacar just unable to follow the pace, I thought ah you know, and it was. Kind uh, of, kind of disappointed. Ex- you know, it was to be expected in, ma- in many ways because we know, you know, he broke his his wrist and we didn't know what kind of form he was in. It- okay, so that was an explanation and everybody this morning and even like we were watching the, 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 the finale uh, you know in Cotteret 5k from the finish I was talking to, to a French journalist from Le Parisien who was going oh well it's going to be you know the Tour de France is going to be a long one now because you know Jonas Vingegaard is going to attack on the last climb take more time off uh, Pogacar and the Tour is over I don't know what we're going to write about well you know only like 5 minutes later he was oh you know jumping all over the place and <laughs> and and, and as you said, the the, the the look of not desperation, but the look of. Uh yeah, the hapless you know look on the face of uh, uh, Jonas Wingegard when when Pogachar attacked today w- was exactly the same as uh, Pogachar's look the, the day the, and stared the day before. And 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 each time it he was not a blistering attack. It was they just upped the tempo well, a little bit. I mean, if I could <laughs> up the tempo like this, you know. But 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 that, it was always always an. Ex- they 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 were really left motionless, reactionless uh, every time. Well, I, and we were all joking that it's a perfect Netflix scenario, like, you know, somebody's written the script. I mean, Christian Prudhomme is just behind me, but you know, Christian, well done. Because, uh, and we all actually, when Christian came uh, to, to this little square where we're at and we, we all kind of, you know, uh, well, cheered him and said, we well, you know, really, you wrote a great script there, uh, uh, Christian, because we couldn't have dreamt, dreamt of anything better before, you know, going to the next mountain range, uh, well, which is coming soon enough. Simon
6: left in a taxi, we waved adieu to Francois and left him in his happy place at Le Viscos, while Mitch and I headed off to Bordeaux where Phillipson won again, although the story of the day was just how close Mark Cavendish had come to winning an outright record-breaking 35th tour stage. Cavendish's gears slipped on the approach to the line. Might have won but for that. This is a man himself outside the Astana team bus after the stage.
1: Mark, after fifth place and your sixth place we felt you were heartened and encouraged. Is there a bit more frustration today? Yeah, a little bit, um,
22: boys are good, they're incredible, um, jump when I wanted to, unfortunately I had a problem with my gears when I was sprinting, we went from the 11 to the 12, I had to sit down Then we went back to the 11, I could stand up but then, then back to the 12, I could go again, so. Yeah, it looked like pretty devastated there actually, you know. It was good. Quite a good jump, but
1: you do in those situations, I guess it's not, it's not meant to be. In spite of that, when you were ahead and you saw the line 40, 30 meters ahead of you, did you start to believe? No, like I said, um, by that, for
22: about 30, 40 to go, I was already had to sit down and stand up again, and my gears were already jumping 11, 12, 11, 12, like got to kind of pray it's not a belief then it's just, it's, it's a
1: hope you know but it is what it is we try again and mark we were a bit worried with two three kilometers to go you weren't in shot at the front of the peloton and um, what kind of abracadabra did you guys do to get you back in position um in the finishing straight just case he's amazing he's like uh, he's like an assassin you know
22: he just does what he needs to do um, smoothly the case is pretty amazing There, move me up. He knows he's got to work earlier than the actual lead out to get me in a good position. Then he'll do that. But uh, he did perfect, perfect to get me on the right wheel into the last K. It's just a case of timing when I jumped, you know. uh,
1: And with gears that are working, a chain that goes onto the 11 sprocket, do you still think that you've got the speed to to beat these guys, and particularly Phillips? I think so yeah um, I'd imagine
22: uh, there might be a couple of teams protesting against Philipson anyway today you know so um, but he didn't impede me so there's nothing
1: wrong with that for what move was that Mark I
22: just came from the left to the right he didn't impede me at all though so it's not, not for me to discuss thanks Mark thank you
6: Stage 9 to Limoges, and the first thing Mitch and I saw on the TV screens in the press room after we arrived was Mark Cavendish lying in the road after a crash. His tour, and possibly his career, it felt at the time, over. Mads Pedersen denied Jasper Philipsen in the uphill sprint finish. A remarkable achievement for his career, but today, with just over 60 kilometres to go, a real routine, innocuous-looking crash towards the back of the peloton. Mark Cavendish hit the ground hard and stayed down and, uh, well, we don't know the extent of his injuries as we're recording, but clearly sufficient to rule him out of the race, he climbed into the ambulance and was taken to hospital here in Limoges, I believe suspected fracture collarbone a real blow for Mark Cavendish and uh, a sad way, we think, for his Tour de France career to come to an end
7: Exactly, look, all the record aside the record is a big thing but I think you know isn't it funny all those dangerous sprints and everything he's involved with and it's just during a stage like you said I'm sure he would have loved to just regardless of the record again love to roll down the Champs-Élysées that one last time um so yeah really sad I, I really feel for him and um in his last year's last year of his career I know what it's like when you announce it you've got this fairy tale idea but not many people get to do the fairy tale
6: this was a day I'd been waiting for since it was announced the tour would be going back to Le Puy de Dôme, which had been out of bounds for logistical and ecological reasons for more than three decades. In fact, it was probably the day I'd been waiting for for 35 years, ever since Johnny Welch won a stage on the volcano in 1988, the last time the tour had visited. I'd made an episode of Kilometre Zero about Le Puy de Dôme calling it Le Puy de Prud'homme, which explained the history of the tour's relationship with the mountain and the race director Christian Prud'homme's obsession with taking the race back. I left Mitch at the bottom and took the train up to the top. Without fans on the road, it was eerie and reminded me of the day they kept the fans away from the Casse Desert on the Col d'Isouard. It was actually even quieter than a lockdown tour, much quieter in fact.
15: Ladies and gentlemen,
12: the train will leave in a very short time. Please go to the train very quickly.
9: train. Very quickly. Don't hydrate the skin
15: first.
6: Mitch and I watched from the roadside as Michael Woods won an incredible pursuit match on the steep corkscrew slopes.
11: was still there
7: wow that was that was a sh- big big difference in pace wasn't it yeah
6: and on the, it looked at that moment that Kelderman's bit was done and Kust was going to take over guard right on Kust's wheel and then Pogacar Simon Yates was in there just moving his way up. Looks like the selection's about to start from this point, doesn't it?
7: Yeah, it's already happened already, but now we're talking about the final selection. It was only yeah, a small group, I guess 30 riders at that point. Um, looks like uh, Van Aert coming now. So yeah, it be interesting to hear these Belgian guys go off here. Let's have a listen.
6: Yesterday was in steaming hot clermont Ferrand and in the morning, quite by chance, I bumped into Daniel in a laundrette and we swapped notes on the tour so far. Mitch and I then had lunch at a little Vietnamese cafe in the centre of town, then he went off with a six-pack of beers to play in a cricket match between the press and the EF education team. Meanwhile, Ian Boswell arrived to join the cycling podcast team. The tour was beautifully poised. Pogacar had chipped away at Vingegaard's lead and went into the rest day just 17 seconds behind the Dane. On the stage to Iswa when the racing resumed we saw Peo Bilbao help reel in Chris Nyland's, then sprint to victory. Bilbao dedicated his win to Gino Maeda who had died in a crash at the Tour de Suisse a few weeks earlier. Jasper Philipson made it four in Moulin, then Cofidis' stage wins seemed to be like red London buses. You wait ages for one, then two turn up in quick succession. Jon Izaguirre gave them their second stage win of the tour at Belleville-en-Beaujolais. And then came the Grand Colombier and a stage win for Mikhail Kwiatkowski of the Ineos Grenadiers. Pogachar took another wafer-thin slice off Vingegaard's lead and now trailed by just nine seconds. Was Vingegaard fading? Was the balance of power swinging Pog's way? Boz certainly thought so.
15: Outside of the Mary Blanc, he hasn't gained any time anywhere on, on Pogachar. Pogachar had one off day or, you know, wasn't wasn't feeling it. But since then, he's put time into Vingegaard every day. And you made a comment that, you know, Vingegaard was getting dropped and looked back. But what's he looking back for? You know, the, the race he's following one rider (laughs) and the riders in the white jersey ahead of you. I think that's
6: a real tell when a rider looks back when they're getting dropped to see whether somebody might be coming that they could maybe flick the elbow and say look can you just do a turn give them that little second or two of recovery but Vingegaard and Pogacar are so far ahead of the others that when one isolates the other the the second place riders really got no one else to turn to they're on their own and 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 vinger is leaking time alarmingly little by little and you do wonder whether this will lead to a a kind of a a definitive crack and the next two days will answer that question but you were at the jumbo visma bus what was the mood like around the bus this evening because uae was all smiles and everyone was you know looking pretty happy with themselves
15: it was pretty somber yes and ryan zayman the the team principal he came over and i was i was standing kind of between the Jumbo bus and the Ineos bus, you know, he came over and congratulated Rod, but then he just went into the corner and just kind of stood there. And I think he was, he was just thinking like, what are we going to do? You know, what's, I mean, this is, you know, even more so than last year, you know, Vingagold, the defending champion, they came in this year, more knowledgeable, more experienced, more prepared for, you know, how do we manage having the yellow jersey in the Tour de France? I think he kind of feels it all slipping through his fingers.
6: On the Col de Joux plan the crowds were huge and Pogacar's bid for the time bonus at the top was hampered by the motorbikes which got in his way. Carlos Rodriguez caught Vingergaard and Pogacar on the descent and soloed into Morzine to make it two wins in a row for Ineos Grenadiers and he also climbed up to third place overall. Dave Browsford, who'd parachuted in for a couple of days from his day job at Nice Football Club must have thought he had the Midas touch. The GC battle, interference from the motorbikes notwithstanding, was something of an anti-climax, but the tour nevertheless remained very finely balanced. Lizzie Banks joined us to assess the race that was becoming something of Schrodinger's tour, both exciting and tame at the same time. was the finish of stage 15 of the Tour de France at Saint-Gervais Mont Blanc my name is Lionel Burney this is the cycling podcast and I'm with two people who are up at the top there first of all Lizzie Banks hello
12: Hello, Lionel Bernie,
6: And Ian Boswell. Hello. Your final episode of this year's tour coverage will be sad to too go. let go. Let's not skip to the end. There's plenty to talk about. <laughs> what was it like up there, Lizzie?
12: Well, it's funny. It was both thrillingly spectacular and slightly anticlimactic, but the view was absolutely stunning. We were in the shadow of Mont Blanc. There were these clouds that were sort of whipped over the top of Mont Blanc. Beautiful blue sky, a sea of yellow jerseys and hats beneath me. And the crowd was absolutely roaring when Vingegor and uh, today Pogacar came to the line so it was really exciting and I loved the atmosphere but then the finish was a little bit disappointing.
6: Stage 15 saw a Wout 1-2. Wout Poles won another stage for Bahrain Victorious. Wout van Aert was a distant second posing questions about what his effort had done to contribute to Jonas Wingergaard and Jumbo vismas overall ambitions. But my mind that evening was on more mundane logistical matters. Would we have somewhere to sleep? We'd heard nothing from our accommodation, which I'd hoped would be the perfect mountain retreat for the rest day. We hastily drew up plan B, meaning Ian and I had a late night dash to get to the Ibis Hotel in Animas before the reception desk closed at midnight. Um, My grumbles with hotels are not over because tonight we actually have nowhere to stay. We are... Hold on, Lionel. Well, you're I, stepping in, aren't you? Lizzie? Yeah,
12: I mean, I have very kindly, <laughs> if I say so myself, offered you my house to stay in multiple times. And I don't think you've actually said yes yet.
6: Well, we're saying yes now, <laughs> because otherwise it's the pavement or uh, sleeping on a roundabout. We do have sleeping bags in the van, but oh. mm, uh, we basically, we booked using a very popular booking website. And, um, Is that a booking, booking yeah, website? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the accommodation has not been in touch to tell us how we get in, how we get the keys, no response from the accommodation at all. And they have the cycling podcast money already in their bank account. So not best pleased. But these are the things the Tour de France sends to test us. It's a rest day tomorrow. And we've got to try and find somewhere alternative to stay tomorrow and Tuesday night. But that won't worry you, Ian. Another change to the cycling podcast team as Ian Boswell headed home and Richard Abraham arrived, just in time for all the tension and drama to be sucked out of the tour. Vingegaard demolished Pogaccio in the time trial, And now that Pogacar trailed by 1 minute 48, Lizzie felt the Slovenian had only one option left to him.
12: That's why we all love him, because he's such an attacking racer and that's why he's a Tour de France winner, because he's not scared to attack and he's not scared to be bold. But he needs to learn that he's got to rein it in in the first couple of weeks. Because we saw this last year and we've seen it again this year now, he's getting more and more tired and late into the race and his competitors are just getting stronger.
6: I don't want to labour the point about yesterday's talking point when you said, why not go from a long way out and really lay down the gauntlet mm. for Vingegaard, but actually maybe that might have been an option.
12: Might have been a good idea. Pogaccia, if you want any tactical advice, just <laughs> listen to the cycling podcast or give me a ring.
18: If you want any tips on who's going to win the stage, maybe don't. Don't come to <laughs> us. though.
6: <laughs> I mean, it's a good point because what you were essentially saying was, you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait in the Tour de France, and yes, that is the smart play. That's the kind of the obvious play. But then something like today happens and all that waiting was for nothing. If the time trial had been a surprise, given how Pog had raced for a week and a half, his collapse on the Col de la Lose perhaps confirmed that his crash at Liège-Bastogne-Liège in the spring and the disrupted build-up to the Tour had finally taken its toll. Pog was still second overall, but the gap was now seven and a half minutes. The tour was over. Barring a disaster, Jumbo visma and Jonas Vingegaard would win a second in a row. Marcin Fernandez, the UAE team Emirates boss, was putting a brave face on things at the finish, though. I know it's very early, but have you any indication what's wrong with today? Did you have the impression this morning that he wasn't quite right?
19: But the impression
10: of yesterday is absolutely, after all, loss 1 minute 38, is a lot of the time internal is the super complicated after 1 minute 38, not only for the time and for the gap and only for the really good dash uh, for this day, obviously today is a keep fighting for the maybe is the bad day of, of, of Jonas and absolutely
11: is the good day of Jonas and bad day of today.
6: Pressure had been building on Soudal Quick-Step. A few days earlier, I'd spoken to Tom Steele's and his brow had been furrowed. Fabio Jakobsen had gone home after his crash. Julian Alaphilippe was trying, but he looked a shadow of his former self. And Patrick Lefebvre's team was facing its first winless Tour de France in more than a decade. That was until Kasper Asgreen pulled off a sensational win in Bourg-en-Bresse. Poulet de Bresse all round. After much speculation, Wout van Aert left the tour to be with his wife, who was about to give birth. On the road, Askreen almost won a second stage in a row, but he was beaten very narrowly by Matej Mohoric, a third stage win for Bahrain victorious and another dedicated to their late teammate Gina Maeda. It was also the catalyst for Mohoric to give one of the most open, heartfelt and eloquent press conferences I've ever witnessed. Was Vingegaard now fully in control? Le Keep's headline, From Another Planet, echoed the infamous one about Lance Armstrong at Cestriere in 1999. I spoke to the paper's chief cycling correspondent, Alex Ruth, who was also the subject of an episode of our Kilometre Zero series. He privately expressed disappointment about the headline, but stood by his analysis. Well, Alex, I wanted to ask you a question about Le Keep's coverage of Jonas Vingegaard a couple mm. of days ago, because the headline was... Raise my eyebrows a bit because of echoes with the headline that greeted Lance Armstrong's stage win in 1999, uh, "Dune Ultra Planet." And I, I know you don't write the headlines, but could you just explain the kind of uh, temperature of your coverage of Jonas Fingerboard over the last couple of days? Um, uh, for for sure, we had to to deal with the
3: with the doubts uh, around the performance. Uh, on the TT uh, and the huge gap with the uh, Pogacar and uh, so we try to in in our pieces we try to uh, to find explanations uh, in the preparation of the TT also maybe in uh, pogacha's shape uh, to explain the the gap and um, for sure the headline was uh, about uh, um, how to say uh, speak about the performance from another planet because he's uh, he's super strong, is stronger than anyone, and also uh, to put uh, the doubts and the uh, the suspicion in in the mix. So
6: the penultimate stage to La Markstein was the tour's unofficial Pino day. Richard spoke to his teammate Stefan Kung before the stage.
17: Ask where it's like on the bus for Pinot Fest, 23, one last time. What's the mood? Yeah, it's the final mountain stage in the Tour de France for him. Uh, it's at his home, like it's the roads he rides every day, so uh, it's going to be a special day for him. and uh, He doesn't show it so much, but uh, yeah, it's going to be an emotional day for him. Do you think he's nervous? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't want to imagine what it feels like. Uh, I guess a mix of emotions... Uh, Joy, uh, but also kind of there's always a smiling and the and the crying eye when you stop a career. I mean, he's made his his uh, his decision and that and it's good and he's totally fine with it. But nevertheless, uh, we we leave such big emotions through the sport. He has had so much emotions, nice ones and also uh, a little bit more complicated ones. So I guess that's all in him today, and he's gonna kind of process or kind of. Feel it through the 130 k today.
6: For a while, it looked like Pino might be able to create one last fairy tale, but there's rarely room for sentiment in the mountains. There was a celebration of Pino, redemption for Pagaccia, and thanks to Giulio Ciccone, the first Italian to win the polka dot jersey since Claudio Chiappucci in 1992. Richard and I reflected on the symbolism and romanticism of Pino's farewell ride. I mean, he's a contradiction. He's... He goes after something,
18: cycling success, GC victory, but he admits that he's not even sure he really wants it for his life. He's very content at home, living a life of, of peace and tranquility. He's, he's expressive on the bike, he, He's very emotive, but he's extremely shy off it. And the word that Maddio used when I interviewed him um, was authentic. And I think that really appeals to the cycling public in France, France as a whole. Mario chooses his words carefully and and you can read into that that there's an authenticity to Pinot. in an era of cycling where the authenticity of its champions has been questioned and isn't assured, Um, particularly during that era of Team Sky dominance when Pinot was often that kind of plucky runner up, you know, never quite able to crack the top 10 he, he got a third of course in uh, in 2014 and looked very good for a podium if not a win in 2019 before he pulled out and there's that kind of sort of uh, bathos with with Pino isn't there there's there's always there's always disappointment to go alongside the 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 joy and and the the beauty he, he's of,
6: the rider who clutches disaster from the jaws of victory And so to Paris, where there was a Belgian stage winner, although not the one we were expecting. Philipson was denied his fifth stage victory of the Tour by his compatriot Jordi Meus. As we said farewell from the cycling podcast's 11th Tour de France, we already had our eyes on the Vuelta a España, with the news breaking that Jonas Vingegaard was planning to ride to bolster Jumbo Visma's pursuit of a Giro Tour Vuelta treble. But that, of course, is another story. And finally then, Jumbo Visma... Of course, won the tour with Jonas Vingegaard. He's been in the yellow jersey since stage six. He won the time trial in emphatic style. And crucially, they also won the team's classification, which I think it was... Which one of the sports directors was it? It might have been Arthur Van Dongen made the point that they've never won it before and that they were really keen to get that as well. And there was that comment in the press conference by Vingegaard yesterday where he said that Observers may not have understood what their tactics were on a day-to-day basis but the team themselves were acutely aware of what they were trying to do and I think the Comparisons with Team Sky and I mean you describe them as robotic in terms of uh, Perhaps the, the lack of joie de vivre on the bike, but I think in their defense you would have to say they not only got the job done in pretty emphatic style in the end but They did ride very differently to the way we've seen Team Sky ride when they were dominating the Tour de France. I mean, Team Sky never used to put one or two or even three riders in breakaways. They never really had another string to their bow. I know a lot of that's down to the kind of all-round brilliance of Wout van Aert. But I think Jumbo-Visma deserved the credit for setting out with whatever their plan was and executing it in such a way that really when you look back, yes, Pagacha folded, but they never really looked like they were rocking, did they?
18: No, this sort of yellow wall, weren't they? I think as well we were, we were judging Jumbo on, on what they did last year when they had Primoz Roglic kind of just like a wrecking ball on some stages in the way that only a kind of Grand Tour winner can be when they play that domestique role. And Wout van Aert just ripping up the script in terms of what a domestique or a, anybody really can do in the Tour. I remember that, that ride into, over Cap Green A, you know, up in the north of france where he just rode away on that climb before the finish and then you know he's a little subdued for wow wasn't it this year he wasn't quite as capable this year um whether that's his condition or just the nature of the racing i'm not quite sure but you know remember what he did on that stage up the ju where he just kind of lazarus like resurrected himself and and you know whether that was tactically sensible or not i'm not sure but um, yeah maybe we're missing a bit of that wow excitement and that's that's changed our time i think the wow factor the wow factor i'm gonna i was chatting before the tour to a danish friend and, and he was talking about ceremonial pancakes um which is what you receive uh, a sort of pretty high honor in denmark uh, jonas vinger had ceremonial pancakes in copenhagen last year and uh, yeah tw- 21 ceremonial pancakes shoved into the
6: well if the reports are to be believed Jonas Vingergaard will now be going to the Vuelta with Primoz Roglic and Jumbo visma clearly setting out to try and win all three Grand Tours.
5: Listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta a España from Barcelona to Madrid.
1: The city of Barcelona's special sporting relationship with the Netherlands has been well established since the 1970s. Messrs. Michels, Kuyf, Coleman, and Clivert, among the most important figures in the recent history of the city's football club. And it was from the Catalan capital that cycling's Dutch superpower would begin their final push towards an unprecedented feat in professional cycling, i.e. victory in all three major tours in a season. The 2023 Vuelta rolled out with a 14.8km town centre time trial and the nationality of the winners was certainly no surprise, although it was a huge one that DSM and not Jumbo had prevailed. The latter's undoing, a rainstorm turning the sky so black that miners' lamps rather than aero helmets might have been appropriate headwear. A travesty, a farce, a circus. This, at least, the description favored by an irate Remco Avonapool.
19: Ridiculous, we're not monkeys in a circus. Yeah, we went super uh, easy in the corners because yeah, we're here for a GC. We don't want to crash. Of course, in the first day, we had a puncture with James, which is unfortunate, but... I mean, it's it's not the most important, what I just want to say is that it's, I mean, look, you guys have all to put lights on your cameras, which means it's dark. So can you imagine if you're sitting in the wheel, getting water in the face? In my eyes, it's just ridiculous. And like I said, for sure, I will get all uh, haters and criticizers again on me, but it's just, that's just how it is.
1: The next morning, race director Javier Guillén was deluged with interview requests. He acquiesced to ours and assured us he was not making a monkey out of anyone. El
5: encuentro del día, the meeting of the day.
1: Well, what happened in the first stage is what nobody wanted to happen. Obviously, a totally unforeseen event happened, and well, the day got much darker than anyone could have thought. We've always held the first stage of the Vuelta a España at this time. I've been director for 15 years and we've always done it on this schedule. In fact, yesterday, in anticipation of the rain, we did actually move the start times forward as much as we could. We couldn't move it anymore because a stage in Barcelona can't be improvised. Barcelona is a very, very large city with a large population within its confines, but also a very densely populated, broader metropolitan area. Therefore, any change to the timetable affects the entire mobility of the whole area. The rain, though, hadn't stopped. Fearing more controversy, Guillen and the commissaires decided to neutralise the end of stage two to Montjuic. At least as far as GC was concerned, Andres Krohn got and kept his stage win, while everything that happened behind him was, well, anyone's guess. Uh, how are you, Daniel? What's it, what's it like? Um, Have you uh, dried out?
6: Are you okay?
1: No, I've had a terrible day, to be honest. Um, I'm keeping up my, well, 66.6% record of phone malfunctions on Grand Tours this year. had a nightmare at the Giro d'Italia when um, liquid got into my phone on the first day. Today, probably unwisely went running in a monsoon this morning. The monsoon that probably most people who watched today's stage will have heard plenty about because it was the talk of... The, certainly the first part of the day, the weather wasn't actually that bad at the finish, but um, I went running in that this morning and consequently have got some kind of liquid in my phone again and it's not working. And this, Lionel, has led to all sorts of problems. Um, yes, so it's been a shocker. It's been a shocker. You're not the I'm only not one Not the only one that's you. had
6: a shocker. I mean, the commissaires have had a difficult day, haven't they? I imagine them trying to work out the GC... I mean, it took them well over an hour to publish the general classification after today's stage. I imagine the commissaires there huddled around sort of soggy start sheets, all with smudged pencil marks on, scrolling through photographs taken by fans at the roadside, and then just giving up and DMing all, all well, the riders. DMing all the riders and, and just asking them simply, look, just tell us where you finished and we'll, we'll put you down. Well,
1: you jest. You jest, Lionel, but did you see uh, there is a video going around on social media of what appears to be a commissaire asking spectators at the side of the road whether they had any footage of the bonus sprint? It was enough to make one yearn for simpler or perhaps just sunnier times. Or yearn for something, anyway. Fram Reyesando.
5: Wistful gazing with Fran Reyes. Fran, we're starting immediately. Live, um, live,
1: live. Wistful, live. Ga- live wistful, wistful gazing. Streaming. I'm going I'm to give you three minutes. To tell me what's on your mind. What's on the horizon, Fran? Turn around, and yeah. we'll tell the listeners where we are currently. Well, what we are <laughs> we we are in Mon, uh, in Montjuïc, the magical mountain they call it. So, what we can see on the horizon is the looming clarity of the sun which is about to cast upon us,
14: you know, which would be the perfect ending for our stay in Barcelona because there is always silver lining and this is it.
1: Day three took us to Andorra and a first mountain top finish that looked ripe for Roglification. But Remco would give the Slovenian a figurative black eye while ending the day with a bleeding one of his own having crashed into a bystander mid-victory celebration. The hue of the Belgian's jersey, though, matched the trickle down his cheek. Not that Jumbo or Sepp Kuss, who Roglic had suggested could even be the team's third leader, seemed particularly flustered. And When we saw Primoz there in the group, we expected a typical Roglic sprint finish. Didn't happen. Should we read much or anything
16: into that? No, I think, uh, yeah, when I was finished there in the last 500 or so, um, I saw he was a bit a bit late to the wheels, a bit a bit too far back, and it's it's such a tight corner in the end here. Uh, so I, I think it's yeah. When the group is that big, it's like a bunch sprint almost. <laughs> Remco is obviously on form. Um, that's what we did learn today. Yeah, yeah, we expected him to be in really good shape already. Uh, you know, in, in the worlds and. And Everything also from last year in the Bolota, he was flying in the first week. Um, so yeah, I, we, we expected that, but uh, still a long way to go
1: for scrutineers of the Yumbo Visma power dynamic. It indeed looks set to be a long three weeks. Um, I did the, the sort of ritual lap of the Yumbo Visma team cars this morning to see where the bikes were positioned, and Primoz Roglic's bike is sort of positioned in uh, what's it's slightly more accessible i would say it depends on the roof racks doesn't it on top of cars (laughs) and you can't always definitely say that the bike on the outside in on the mechanics side is is the team leaders because sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the bike at the front on the right hand side that's more accessible but rogge's is on the back closest to the mechanic's door effectively Mm -hmm. and vingegaard is the one at the front um however fran um, <laughs> like, talk- I, really, I really like that you know these kind of details and wow. you, go, you go chase them well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, whether it's in any way relevant, I do not know Caden Groves won back-to-back on stages 4 and 5 and the race leader, Evenepul's shoulders were soon pressed against the wall as Jumbo exhibited their total cycling on stage 6, the Havalambre. Sepkus, the stage winner while little under three minutes behind Roglic and Vingegaard, exposed Remco's vulnerabilities Or perhaps something more sinister. A flashback to the Giro. Remco, we asked you this morning about illness in the team. Uh, You said you felt fine. How did you feel on the road today?
19: Not bad. Uh, I was feeling okay. Just uh, couldn't uh, speed up uh, when the others went. I just had to hold my own pace. And uh, in the end, it was 30 seconds slower than uh, the fastest guys. So... uh,
1: Avnipol now trailed Kuss by 2 minutes and 39 seconds. Roglic and Vinguga were even further back, but these were sweet worries. Their embrace at the finish line reflected a common delight at seeing Kuss rewarded.
4: Yeah, I mean, he's uh, a start of, uh, of the mountains. And uh, yeah, for sure, I mean, today I had, uh, I had a bit better legs. Uh, but yeah, long way to go, huh? But good day, huh? We will enjoy it. We don't complain, huh? And well... We won, we take time, more you cannot wish.
1: But Roglic's words before the Vuelta that perhaps Kuss could win it now looked a little less off the cuff, a little more on the money. Still, surely a rider in his third Grand Tour of the year, with next to no pedigree of pursuing his own ambitions, could not now, could he? Lionel, do you think they would have liked to put Sepp Kuss into the red jersey beyond, I mean we heard Jonas Vingard talking about what a great guy Sep is and I'm sure, you know, as a sort of gesture, as a reward for everything he's done for this team, everything he's done this year this is his third Grand Tour, don't forget and he's, well, he's played a key role in them winning the previous two um, but uh, besides that uh, in thinking about the race situation um, will they be quite happy that Lenny Martinez has taken red and not
6: them? It's a tricky one, that isn't it? Because this the the fact that Remco Evenepoel presumably didn't want the red jersey doesn't necessarily mean that Jumbo-Visma would have turned it down or or, or would have been disappointed. I'm sure Sepkus personally would love a few days in the red jersey. I don't think it would change too much for Jumbo-Visma because they are kind of the they're the strongest team in the race, and so they will they will have to ride as if they are. Defending a, a virtual red jersey, anyway, really. The big question is whether this really genuinely makes Sepp Kuss a, a potential winner of the Vuelta. And of course, looking at the time gaps, you know, why not? He's certainly in the picture. But just a sort of note of caution uh, his best Grand Tour result is eighth in the 2021 Vuelta, where he's 18 minutes 55 behind Roglic. You have to caveat all of that with the fact that he's never ridden a Grand Tour with his own ambitions as his biggest priority and you have to imagine that at some point that gap uh, is going to close up purely because of the time trial you would think Tuesday when the race resumes after the rest day and we see how everyone uh, sits after the time trial I think that will give us a much clearer idea uh, and a clearer answer to that question what do you think
1: uh, no, I, I don't think he's a threat um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think that with two nominal, notional GC leaders in Roglic and uh, Jonas Vingegaard, they'll be spread a little bit thinly um, in spite of you know the strength that they have here. An incredible team they've got. Um, Wilco Kelderman's already crashed a couple of times, so he may be ailing for a while longer. So, Sepkus is going to be really important. He also, I know, spoke to my colleague Andy Hood, our colleague, this morning, and admitted that he's tired. Um, which alarmed me slightly um, six days into the World a España I know that his well his whole season really this year has has consisted of grand tours and he's been able to rest in between them but um, I, I was slightly worried when I heard that worried on, on his behalf he's still riding brilliantly but I don't think he's got it in him um, to, to mount a real GC challenge Based on previous predictions that one was more like a kiss of life than a cuss of death had anyone asked me in say 2010 to nominate future Grand Tour winners, I would probably have made the case for a 23 year old Estonian named Ryan Taramay, whose performances in the first couple of years of his pro career had me smitten. In 2023, Taramay was still in the bunch, a distinguished but Grand Tour victoryless career nearly behind him. Day 8 and Soret de Kati gave us and him the chance to relive an infamous stage to the same location
14: sufriendo probablemente como nunca en su vida, pero con ese aliciente eh, que es un triunfo de etapa en una vuelta grande. Reintarama Taramae, cabeza de carrera. How strange is it that
1: everyone, well, remembers this one day, fourteen years on? Um, it wasn't the day when you won, is it? What, what, what does it make you feel?
20: Uh, yeah, for me personally, I I still feel that same pain. I, I remember <laughs> everything because it was really really tough. It was very hot and. Uh, and uh, really steep climb and yeah, in those times, you don't have enough cares. Now I have 34 in the back, 36 in the front, in the past at 39, 23. So to get over of 23% slopes for 3,5k, it's uh, really almost impossible. And um, everybody remember it because everybody was sure that uh, this guy going to win because I dropped uh, the others without coming out of my saddle. uh, staying in my position just and everybody dropped. But then, yeah, it's turned uh, out catastrophe and uh, they speak it's one of the biggest (laughs) cracks of the latest year. So, (laughs) of course, they remember.
1: Ryan, we don't see it on the television, but I saw a picture today. It looks as though you actually got off your bike. Is that right?
20: Yeah, I stopped uh, alongside uh, to the road for 10 minutes just to... uh, (laughs) took a rest and i remember one uh, spectator came to me put me water uh, on my head another put me apple in my mouth Uh, (laughs) i never had some uh, this kind of uh, um, souvenirs memories and when when
1: we watch it back it just looks like so long ago you know the way that riders look on a bike looks totally different what do you think when you look back at those images and think back to the start of your career
20: yeah, generally the level is just so higher, much more higher, because everything is much more professional. And uh, to be honest, I believe that that was the era uh, between doping and uh, between uh, really professional training systems. So that was space that nobody really knew it, nothing. Uh, the youngsters was not so strong because we don't know how to train, how to prepare, but now, uh, 15 years old, they train already like professionals, and when they get 20, they are well the leader jersey, like Martinez now. But that times, was fun. To train was harder, because you did a lot of mistakes. Sometimes you did six hours training, and you eat only salad, because you think that you you need to be skinny, but... uh, now everything is changed. You know, you know everything. If you trust their team, uh, they tell you everything: how to become strong and how to maintain strong. It's actually much more easy now. Do you wish you were starting
1: your career now? Would that be a lot
20: easier? That's also hard because, yeah. There is much more talent now, and uh, and it's much more harder to make results. For example, before uh, there was maybe friend of bus driver uh, of team who this friend have son and he was good in cycling and they make him sign. But now they they look the numbers. It's not this. Uh, connection, politic anymore. It's only about numbers. So they, if you have good numbers, they discover the good talents and they bring uh, like that uh, the guys on the cycling. It's uh, not uh, the word against word that uh, I like this guy or like that guy. But now it's look numbers. This is the best, and now everybody look the riders like this, and then the average level is much more higher. I think it's much more harder, and uh, it was a little bit more easy before. Roglic
1: would win that afternoon and Kuz finally take the jersey. Then more rain and another neutralised uphill finish in Murcia took us into the rest day. Next up was the TT in Bayadolid, where Ghana was on another planet. I am in Bayadolid, where in the early evening of September 16, 1965, around 300,000 locals reportedly witnessed a flying saucer soaring above the city, making it one of the most notable incidents incidents in the history of spanish ufology and where late this afternoon we saw an identified flying object in white red and green tearing through the city streets here to reveal the identity of said rocket ship and review all the other action on today's 10th stage the individual time trial is the cycling podcast own answer to buzz Lightyear or buzz aldrin it's lionel (laughs) bernie oh i wondered where that was going among the Galacticos of the general classification, the rankings said that Avnipol had gone best. But he still trailed Cusp by more than a minute overall.
19: Overall, we should be happy with the GC result. But of course, it's a pity we, do, we don't take the stage today. Two times second and already a stage within the pocket is pretty nice for the first ten days of uh, of this World. Uh. Yeah, let's say we have to be happy with the, with the GC gaps that I uh, took today or uh, the GC lead that I took today and uh, also Coming quite closer to, to Sep, who did actually a, a super good TT. So, uh, big, big congrats to him as well.
1: his superb jersey defence had been a surprise, even for a self declared Sep supporter and countryman. Here he is, the enemy of the state, the man who said that Sepp Kuss had no chance of keeping the jersey yesterday. Yeah, I mean,
0: I will rephrase this because before the TT, I thought he had a chance. During the TT, after Ghana wins, I thought he didn't and I'm really glad that he kept it, so that's cool.
1: You should be stripped of those stars and stripes that you wear so proudly on your sleeve every day.
0: Yeah, no, no, I'm a big supporter of him, you know. Uh, I just, yeah, I guessed wrong yesterday.
1: Had a jersey been awarded for the best interviewee of the Vuel- it may have gone to Rui Oliveira of UAE after Sebas Molano's victory in Zaragoza. Oliveira's lead out that day a masterpiece of timing, speed and precision. His interview fizzing with excitement and emotion.
2: Molano wanted to go like 600. I just was trying to follow, find the, the right moment. Like for 50 to go, I just find the gap. I knew it would be on my wheel. Like, luckily I had the legs to do a really good lead out and fuck, just seeing... Finishing first, I'm I'm so fucking proud. And so to the
1: Pyrenees, the Obisque, Spondel and Tourmalet. A new twist on the old circle of death and fatal to Avonapol. Dropped on the Obisque, his would be a funereal march to the finish line. His deficit from stage winner Jonas Vinguga, over 27 minutes. His saviours, teammates like James Knox. Less domestiques than pallbearers for the previous few hours and then spokesman for their diminished leader. James, this morning, when, or well, it was this afternoon, when the day started, was there any inkling that Remco wasn't feeling himself?
0: No, 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 we were all for a normal um, GC day. Remco was feeling good before the start, and yeah, just wasn't his day. Clearly had a pretty rough day, so no, there was nothing that we saw coming.
1: And... In the race itself at the moment when he drops i guess on the uh, obese i mean was that a a key moment in the race where the the pace sort of changed from what i saw it felt like uh, because i was in the front just keeping an eye on jumbo they were riding
0: a steady tempo and they must have got word that Remco's in the back or something because they accelerated and then only like a minute later i got in the rain something in the radio saying like yeah Remco's having a bad day so i dropped back Or guys were already around him at that point and uh, the Jumbo train continued so that's the last we saw of the front of the race. I think he personally had a very tough time of it, you know, the weight of maybe feeling like he let himself down or other guys down and having to come to terms that his race was over here but from my experience, you know, it's just part of bike racing that when you're not on your day you get dropped and you crawl your way to line. So it wasn't, yeah, it's hard isn't it? I feel feel for him in the specific circumstances of the world looking on him, which is just no one else in the peloton has that, so yeah, anyway, it's spike bike racing
1: in it. Remco's capitulation had cleared the path for Jumbo. Their next challenge, with Kuss still in red, and Roglic and Vingegaard under two minutes back, choosing their weapon, and winner, and on what criteria?
16: No, we, uh, I think Jonas had, had really, really good legs, and he was super motivated, and um, yeah, he was willing to take the most risk uh, attacking from far out, and um yeah, also what he did was, was a good show of teamwork. I mean, it worked really well for Primoz and I to be able to uh, stay behind. Did you know that Jonas wanted to win for his daughter because it's her birthday today? Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was definitely his motivation. And he kept asking me, oh, how do you feel? He said, oh, I feel good. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I feel really good. Yeah, I said, I know, I know. And uh, <laughs> you, you can win today. Don't worry, I, <laughs> no one's going to stop you. So, uh, yeah, really, really nice for him and, and for his family. Really, really good. Trump's really good. And did somebody feel really, really, really good, they would have gone first? Oh, I don't know. I think, I think Jonas was the, the strongest one out there. I mean, the, the attack he did going from so far out, uh, Yeah, you, you really have to have good legs and a lot of confidence for that.
1: Garrett Thomas had come to the Vuelta with victory ambitions of his own. They had started to dissolve on stage three. And by now, two weeks in and 21 places down on general classification, the Welshman had taken his place in the popcorn gallery. I'm going to ask you for a prediction now. Who's going to win the Vuelta? You can, you can say yourself, but it, we, we presume it's one of the Jumbo Visma riders. Who do you
10: think might win now? I think Sepp is in a great position. You know, I think having done what he's done for those two guys, but I know myself, you can ride for someone, you know, for years and they still want to win. So, but heart says Sepp, head might say someone else, maybe Vinagard.
1: In the Survivor movie that was Aviannopoul's Vuelta, he had touched the void on the Tourmalet and now, just 24 hours later, became Remco the Revenant, winning at La Rabelagua.
19: Like I said this morning, was a, a super hard evening yesterday, um, a lot of doubting, a lot of um, not knowing what to do. and. Uh, then this morning when we had the plan in the bus, they said, look Remco, uh, you have to feel the legs, see how you feel. And uh, if you're in the breakaway, make sure you're smart and try to go for it. And I think the legs I had today was completely different than I had yesterday. So already, like I said before, I had a lot of messages with my wife, a lot of, uh, and some, some uh, minutes of phone call. And uh, she, I mean, I, I told her I, I didn't want to continue and she just told me. Look, you have to continue, you have to make the best of it, and if you, if you do it, do it for me. And I think those words were enough for me to, to take a lot of morale, a lot of energy in the legs, and uh, I showed it already today.
1: A breather, the second rest day in Cantabria. A chance for Jumbo Visma to gather their thoughts, redefine their strategy, and perhaps their hierarchy. The outcome of a behind closed doors, heart to heart, a race it had been, and a race it would remain. Darwinian survival of the fittest while hashtag zamen winning winning together we on the outside didn't know what to believe and anyway suddenly it all paled into irrelevance with the news that natan van hoydonk had collapsed and crashed at the wheel of his car in belgium still the debate continued
6: they still want to win the Vuelta as a team that's the goal surely from from the team's point of view it has to be a Jumbo-Visma rider on the top step of the podium, one on the second step, and preferably one on the third step. And they're still in the same position. You could argue they're in, in a stronger position because Vingergaard is now further away than the likes of Juan Ayuso and Enric Mas.
1: I, I put it to you that that shouldn't be the only goal. The the goal should be, well, the main goal, I suppose, is is top spot on the podium. Today, on the Angli route, with Setkus
6: in their wheel, Uh, once the gap opened, I mean, I'm just looking from, from social media point of view as well, because there's a little bit of kind of management of, of, uh, you know, the optics here. Jumbo Visma's uh, Twitter account said, uh, Sep in his communication, go guys. It's Primoz and Jonas in front now. Now, uh, we then heard from Grisha Nearman on the TV say that's the sports director say that they couldn't hear the race radio or see the pictures on the TV when all this was going on. So I'm not quite sure where Jumbo Visma's uh, social media manager has kind of got this info from. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not suggesting that it's a, a flat out um, you know, falsehood, but clearly they're very aware of the optics. So the simple thing for uh, Roglic and Vingegaard to have done, which is also the kind of convention in stage racing, is that you defend the red jersey, the leader's jersey, and they could have just knocked it back a little bit. And given Sepkus the armchair ride to the finish, Roglic could still have won the stage. And then there wouldn't be any kind of, um, you know, net, slightly negative controversy about the way they played it out, because effectively they attacked the race leader. You just don't do that. For Nathan Van Hoydonk. Vingegaard is, uh, Van Hooydonk, he described him as his best friend. Vingegaard, probably the most likely to be able to attack from four kilometers to go to win the stage than, you know, Roglic, who would probably want to go a little bit closer in or go very close to the line. Sepkus in the red jersey,
1: going to be completely marked. Next, the Angliru. At least that's what we think. Krupa FDJ débutant Louis Askey was referring to.
0: I'm honestly more scared for this other one we've got coming up. Aaron, uh, what's it called now? Aaron Glu or something? Aaron
16: uh, Yeah, this one.
1: Others like Joe Dombrowski were braced for another Jumbo carve-up.
16: Jumbo ruining cycling. <laughs> I got, that on, I got that on tape. No, we can't put that in the public, can we?
1: And so to the stage. Much of which our other favourite American, Larry Warbass, experienced from the break before a combination of jumbo and the most infamous climb in cycling nearly broke him. Larry, you look a bit fresher than you did 10 minutes ago. Very fresh, and like you've had a cracking day out. How was
4: it? Oh my God, I don't think I'm ever going to recover from that. It was hard.
1: Yeah. I mean, you to get getting the break. <laughs> so every, yeah, for a every cloud. <laughs> I can't see many silver linings on this cloud, but there must be one there.
0: Yeah, probably got a couple of good photos, but
1: that's about it.
4: <laughs> it's always nice to try to get in the break on a day like today, you know, like a mythical <clears throat> climb like Angleroo, but Jumbo just, uh, yeah,
0: they don't want to share this wealth, of, so. Doesn't leave a whole lot of space for the rest of us at
1: the moment. What Larry had not seen and we couldn't quite believe was Roglic dropping, some said abandoning, in fact attacking Kuss and Vingegaard going with him. It would be another yellow and black 1-2-3 on the stage. Roglic, Vingegaard, Kuss in that order. But couldn't have looked less like a united front. Kuss's advantage on GC now just 8 seconds and even his diplomacy being tested.
4: Uh, yeah, uh, what I want to say is my responsibility. Uh, he's the first guy that I want to win this vuelta, but yes, my responsibility is also yes to, to do my best if I'm here, uh, and yeah, then the road uh, will, will tell us. Uh, but yeah, for the moment, is uh, sweet worries, uh Who is uh, first, second, third?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the win today was uh, our main goal, and uh, to yeah to keep the situation. 1-2-3 uh, in GC, so uh, I think uh, everything went by by uh, how we wanted, and I uh, think we can be happy with, with everything, and uh, yeah, I'm, to be honest, I'm still happy that uh, Sepp is in the jersey. Yeah, to be honest, I actually hope that he will he yeah. will keep the jersey. I would love to see Sepp winning this Vuelta uh, Hispania.
16: Crazy day, super fast. Um, yeah, it was a day that, that I was looking forward to before the both even started. I said... I wanted to win on the on the Engliru, just like every other every other uh, climber in the race, um, and uh, yeah, that, that's what we what we did today. Uh, and I, I think I showed today and, and a lot of the other stages that I that I deserve to be in this in this position position that uh, I'll probably never never be in again in my life. I realized that, and, and they they realized that too. They really want to see me win.
1: Kendall and Rome, I mean Primoz and Jonas Wink <laughs> I am of course I am of course joking um, but that was the succession theme tune that's been the sort of theme tune for all debate all conversation about well this is it a power struggle we can't really talk about power struggle or can we Like it up? is now um, it, it really, is now yeah. it's it a is, power you think struggle it, yeah well, well, let's sort of summarise some of the, the salient points of those interviews that we heard anyway. Um, Jonas Vingergaard saying unequivocally, Lionel, that they want Sepkus to win the Vuelta a España. Well, it's going to be kind of difficult to make him win the Vuelta a España now. They're going to have to be very careful, aren't they?
6: Well, yeah, Vingergaard is Vingegaard is a time bonus away from accidentally taking the red jersey, isn't he? So yes. it, 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 there's a sort of glass ceiling in front of them all now uh, and it's going to make the next couple of hilly stages tomorrow and Saturday really tricky for them I think you, 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 you've, you've been born. You've been proven right, you were right 24 hours early
1: <laughs> and Primoz Roglic he, he sort of trotted out his usual Suidoare's line but he said much the same thing that in spite of what we saw today they do definitely no honestly, really uh, want Sepkus to win the Vuelta España and then Sepkus I thought was interesting, I think he was he looked relieved tonight to us, uh, relieved with a proviso because we heard him there talking about how he feels or he hopes that ev- everyone has got what they wanted. Um, Jonas has got his Sabutio set, um, <laughs> Primoz has gone home with the Star Wars figures, and that now finally they can ride a little bit more defensively and effectively. Well, give um, Sepkus a limousine ride to the Huerta España trophy title which they but could have done lim- this afternoon well yeah that, that limousine that this afternoon that, that limousine could have been ordered a couple of days ago mm. could it not like i that? mean i is think that, is, is I that think your I can,
6: contention yeah I, I i give them the benefit of the doubt yesterday because they were racing in very uncertain and probably quite emotional and stressful circumstances
1: that night another meeting and apparently a resolution the next morning in Ayande, team boss Richard Plugger couldn't tell us what it was, but the air had been cleared. In Yumbo's plans for the remaining four days there would be no confusion, no ambiguity.
10: So it's uh, not a textbook uh, solution for this and uh, we need everybody, like always, to discuss. So and what we always do uh, during the races, we uh, evaluate uh, the stage. We evaluate uh, how we can uh, go further and uh, we did that l- last night as well. and. Uh, yeah, you will see it today.
1: Richard, specifically yesterday, Jonas followed uh, Primoz. Probably difficult to make the decision in the heat of the moment. But was, was that a mistake? Because it's taken him so close that it's created a lot of questions. And it almost feels as though he's breathing down Sepp's neck now. No, I think, uh, you know, yesterday was yesterday. And I think we did a good job. Like I said, uh, just now, you know, we are happy with
10: the results yesterday. Uh, again, it was a brutal climb. Uh, things ca- can happen. Big, big things can happen there. So we needed to be uh, to be sharp because the big goal, ultimately, is to be uh, uh, to win the Vuelta. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's more or less. Uh, what's it?
1: We and others scratched our heads
10: when it comes to the race yesterday. It was, yeah, I was a bit bemused to be honest. More in the fact, Roglic has taken a lot of heat, but I think it's kind of. Um, kind of agree with it, to be honest. Like It's changing his position in no way. He's not going to win this Walter unless he puts a minute into, into Jonas today, which I can't see, but you never know. Um, his third place is solid anyway. There was no need to continue. Um, but the day before, same thing really. Jonas went early, other teams were around, so they didn't pull behind, they didn't chase. For me, if you if you're gonna say we race and the best guy wins, then do it, but when guys are kinda of hampered and tactically, I think it doesn't you can't do it then, if that makes sense, you know? Like Primos and, and Kuss aren't gonna chase Jonas with Ayuso and you know Siano and whoever in the wheel. So you're not really racing it, are you?
1: You will see, said Plugger and we did. No more attacks from Vingegaard and Roglic and perfect, if anemic, harmony. That was until, just beyond the finish line on the Cruz de Linares, Roglic came to rest within range of the cycling podcast microphone and turmoil was unleashed once again. Primoz, uh, you got a bit of criticism yesterday for the interview. How did it make you feel when you saw the way people had reacted to the interview you gave yesterday? Yeah, I don't know. When people said you should just be riding for CEP and you shouldn't... Um, have any other thoughts, any other ideas? What did you feel?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, everyone has uh, their own
1: opinions. I mean, including myself. Uh, uh, so uh, I don't really care much. And in the meeting last night, so it was decided that Sep was going to, well, hopefully win the world and everyone was going to ride for Sep.
4: Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, our bosses uh, said in the evening uh, that uh, the GC should be the way it is. So uh, we try to keep it like that.
1: How did you feel about that?
4: Uh, I have my personal thoughts about it, but uh, I will work for it. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks. Roglic may have been a conscientious objector, but he was no rabble-rouser. He had said his piece while also privately beginning to envision a future outside of this winning machine whose most reliable fuel source for the previous half-decade had been his victories. And so it was that with Kuss crowned in Madrid, Jumbo Visma's apotheosis, the grand slam of grand tours with three different riders, may also on reflection come to symbolise the end of an era. We had chortled, we had critiqued, but the pitch perfect final symphony had been victory by a man whose whole career until that point had been a parable of sacrifice and dedication to the common cause.
16: Yeah, it's a crazy feeling. When I first had the jersey it was uh, of course a totally new new situation and I, I wasn't sure whether I would enjoy it or not, and um, yeah, as as the days went on, I, I felt better and better, and, and had more confidence. So it became not a not a burden at all. It, it just gave me more more power, um, more more confidence in myself, and um, yeah, I think with with that you can put put everything else to the, to the side.
1: That was the Star Spangled Banner and you are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freeba, I'm the host of this episode and I am in Madrid, precisely mere metres from the iconic Fuente de Cibeles or Cibeles Fountain where since the 1980s Real Madrid's footballers have traditionally celebrated titles by planting a kiss upon the lips of the Anatolian mother goddess Cibeles, and where today Sepp Kuss dressed in red was embraced by his Jumbo Visma teammates at the end of their 10,048.7 kilometre conquest of cycling's three grand tours Brian Nygaard, you can probably hear the water, you can probably hear the gushing Cibeles fountain behind me, if you strain, if you cock your ear, you can maybe even hear um, the, well, the The end, I think of Sepp Chris's victory speech. Um, He's just gone up on the podium. He's been going for some minutes, I must say, Brian. Um, I don't know if you're following it on television and you can tell me what he's actually saying because I can't hear an awful lot.
3: Yeah, I mean, the reason why it was uh, a lengthy speech was that he actually did it both in English first and then in what I think was quite good, uh, almost fluent Spanish. Uh, obviously thanking his uh, team, mentioning them all by name, thanking his uh, staff, the sports directors,
1: etc. And so off we and they went into the Madrid night. Jumbo's mission accomplished, their miracle complete. And their king, to use Richard Plugger's words from a few days earlier definitively dethroned Brian uh, as you were just recapping there uh, and the sprint finish and um, Primoz Roglic walked past with his partner and Jonas Vingegaard as well with his family and Primoz saw a uh, sign we love you Sep," and um, he sort of feigned indignation and said what about me what about me um, he was in, <laughs> Did he really? he was in yeah, he was in great form. He was in great form when he crossed the line. Um, irreverent as always, he's got this very sort of irreverent streak. Primus Roglic, I think we all were all pretty familiar with it now. And um, he was sort of in the middle of a big scrum of Visma riders and indeed reporters, cameramen, and so on and so forth. And he started just throwing gels, the leftover gels, I think, in his pockets and in his teammates' pockets. Um, throwing them into the crowd and wishing everyone a Merry Christmas repeatedly <laughs> for about 30 seconds which was well you know it, was, it's been a
3: light motif in this world so that gifts have been given you know maybe he's just uh, just staying within the context of how many people uh, a lot of people at least saw saw the outcome <laughs>
11: The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.